Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. was around today, I have a feeling he would begin most of his riddles with the comment or the question, when is a bailout never really a bailout? Welcome to the other side of midnight. We are on pins and needles watching the American banking system. No, the global banking system trying to determine if the collapse of these two banks, Signature Valley Bank and uh, and Silicon Valley Bank means that a whole bunch of other dominoes are about to fall. Is this 2008 all over again? Is the banking system built on a house of cards? Well, Joe Biden, the president of the United States, says no. He says that the banking system is safe. So these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. Uh, let me play that again because my audio apparently was not up. The banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. So here's the situation. Uh, the shareholders of SVB Bank are not going to be uh, bailed out. If you were invested, whether you had $1,000 worth of stock in SVB Bank or $10,000 worth of stock in SVB Bank, you're not getting bailed out. Your investment, you took a risk. Your investment is not safe. And as far as Signature Bank goes and SVB Bank, the state of New York put Signature Bank into receivership. This is the, I believe, second and third largest bank collapses in uh, since the Great Depression. Um, Governor Kathy Hochul is saying the same thing that her federal counterparts are saying, which is this is not a bailout. Now, first of all, let's look at the idea of what a bailout is and why a bailout might be bad. You might remember I was talking with uh, Simon Constable yesterday on this program, and he explained 
that uh, there's a very real problem with moral hazard on the uh, on this issue. And we'll get back to what Simon had to say on the on that front. But here was uh, the governor of the state of New York yesterday on the signature bank front. Uh, the management has changed. This was important. This is not a bailout of government taxpayer dollars. This is simply using fees that are uh, assessed on all banks by the FDIC in such a time they would need them. So that money is there. It's not from the taxpayers. Now, that's really the question, right? And he was Janet Yellen, by the way, the Treasury Secretary, Sunday on Face the Nation. This was before the news of Signature Bank had come. Well, let me say America's economy relies on a safe and sound banking system that can provide for the credit needs of our households and businesses. So whenever a bank, especially one like Silicon Valley Bank with billions of dollars uh, in deposits, fails, it's clearly a concern. Um, From the standpoint of depositors, many of which may be small businesses, uh, they rely on access to their funds to be able to um, pay the bills that they have, and they employ tens of thousands of people across the country. We've been hearing from those depositors and other concerned people this weekend. So let me say that I've been working all weekend with our banking regulators to design appropriate uh, policies to address this situation. I can't really provide further details at this time. But what I do want to do is emphasize that the American banking system is really um, safe and well capitalized. It's resilient. I'm not disputing that uh, Janet Yellen is a very intelligent woman. She's certainly very experienced in the, the economy and finance and handling the world's financial markets. But if you listen to her. Does she sound like someone that's in a position to calm down the markets? Does she sound like someone that you feel reassured by? She sounds nervous. Now, I'm not picking on her for the way that she speaks. I'm just saying if the markets are looking for a Treasury secretary to sort of calm things down and say, no, 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 it's going to be okay. She comes out. She sounds almost frightened. As even as the words that she say, even as the words that she's saying say the opposite, if you listen to her tone, and I, maybe it's just the way she speaks, but she sounds as if she's a frightened turtle. If, I mean, if I were as an investor in one of these uh, one of these banks that has uh, a lot of exposure uh, in, uh, in the, some of these same bond markets that hurt both Signature and SVB, I'd be panicked. So Janet Yellen... Joe Biden all say don't panic, much like the large friendly letters on the front page of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I completely understand where they're coming from. I completely understand where Hochul's coming from in terms of wanting to make the depositors whole, people, including small businesses, that put their money in this bank, and now they don't want to be out if they had more than $250,000. I totally get where they're coming from because – If the government was to say, if you were to uh, let people who had more than $250,000 lose their money over two fifty, dollars because that's the number that's uh, insured by the FDIC, if you were to allow that to go away, to fail, to, uh, you know, 
to be uh, a, a prisoner or a victim, I should say, of the bank downturn, then it would cause potentially a run on the bank. You would see everybody that has more than $250,000, including every business that has more than $250,000 in every bank, run to pull their money out of the bank. It would be like it's a wonderful life. Did you get your money? No. Well, I did. Old man Putter will pay 50 cents on the dollar for every share you got. (laughs) Yes, cash. Well, what do you say? Now, Tom, you have to stick to your original agreement. Now, give us 60 days on this. Okay, thing. Randall. Are you going to Potter's? Better to get half than nothing. I'm going to Tom. I need to Tom. Now, Randall, Randall, wait. Now, wait. Now, listen. Now, listen to me. I, I beg of you not to do this thing. If Potter gets a hold of this building and loan, there'll never be another decent house built in this town. He's already got charge of the bank. He's got the bus line. He's got the department stores. And now he's after us. Why? Well, it's very simple, because we're cutting in on his business, that's why. Because he wants to keep you living in his slums and paying the kind of rent he decides. Joe, you had one of those Potter houses, didn't you? Well, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what he charged you for that broken-down shack? Here, Ed, you know, you remember last year when things weren't going so well and you couldn't make your payments? Well, you didn't lose your house, did you? You think Potter would have let you keep it? Can't you understand what's happening here? Don't you see what's happening? Potter isn't selling, Potter's buying. And why? Because we're panicky and he's not, that's why. He's picking up some bargain. Now, we, we can get through this thing, all right. We, we've got to stick together, though. We've got to have faith in each other. Now, compare the confidence that George Bailey has in what he's saying to the bank depositors with what we heard from Janet Yellen, who just sounds totally panicked. So for roughly 77 hours... Between noon on Friday, noon Eastern, and 6 p.m. on Sunday, you had all sorts of Silicon Valley bigwigs and politicians and other other people. I played the audio from Andrew Yang yesterday calling vocally for uninsured depositors of Silicon Valley Bank to be made whole, to essentially be bailed out by the federal government. In the end, they got what they wanted. Now, that was one of the issues back in 2008 that united folks on the left and the right. They were not for these bailed out they were not for these bailed out banks. They did not want Uncle Sam to come to the rescue of banks that took it upon themselves to make such risky bets. And I I, I agreed with them. The Biden administration is pushing back hard on the idea that this was a bailout. Here's a quote from the uh, the tre- from Treasury, the Fed, and the FDIC. No losses associated with the resolution of Silicon Valley Bank will be borne by the taxpayer. A lot of folks are not going to be convinced. Now, when a bank fails, depositors are made whole by the FDIC insurance fund. The insurance only covers deposits up to $250,000, although there are a lot of workarounds that allow depositors to effectively buy much more FDIC insurance than that. So in the case of... SVB Bank and Signature Bank, FDI insurance will now cover all depositors, regardless of size. The FDI, the FDIC insurance fund, which is funded by a levy on bank deposits, stands at roughly $125 billion. It's worth noting that this is not necessarily radical or new. Uninsured depositors have been paid out in full in every bank failure in living memory, with just one exception. It was IndyMac back in 2008. So in the absence of Sunday's announcements, the insurance fund would have been pressed into heavy duty by the onset of a banking crisis. On the other hand, in the presence of this announcement, there's no need for anybody to move their money at all. 
and the pressure on the fund could be tiny. So I get what they're doing here. On the one hand, it makes a lot of sense. So while this is undoubtedly 100% a bailout of depositors at these two banks, SVB and Signature, its cost could, in some respects, be negative. And that's why I'm curious where you come down on this. Do you think the depositors should be made whole? I'll tell you, I'm usually against bailouts precisely for the reasons that Simon Constable mentioned yesterday, the issue of moral hazard. But part of me thinks that uh, this might be the, under the circumstances, the best situation that we could hope for in a bad time. Tell me what you think. Is this a bailout, number one? They say it's not a bailout because no taxpayer money is going to it. It's only money from the FDIC insurance fund. And two, should the depositors be made whole? Or should people learn their lesson that they should only keep up to $250,000 in one account? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. What do you think? The, what they're not saying is that most taxpayers are also bank depositors and some portion of their bank deposits is used to fund the FDIC in what feels a lot like an involuntary tax being levied by a government agency. So I guess the fundamental question is, if a bailout doesn't cost anything, is it really a bailout? So I, I, I'm, uh, I'm somewhat perplexed by this. I, um, you know, I don't know. 800-848-9222. Tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. There's a lot of politicians blaming the other political party, which I'm sure is very helpful. Uh, The Republicans are blaming the uh, Democrats for being too woke. The Democrats are blaming the Republicans for deregulating the banks, including uh, doing away with the restrictions of Dodd-Frank. I think we actually could have gone much further in terms of regulations than Dodd-Frank. I would have loved to have seen something along the lines of uh, reinstitution of Glass-Steagall. So um, tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. I think one of the fundamental lessons here, to repeat what I said yesterday, the Federal Reserve should hold off on raising interest rates again until they have done a thorough appraisal on the consequences for the banks. And when the Fed rapidly raises interest rates, it needs to do a better job monitoring banks that have invested heavily in Treasury bonds. What do you think? Claude is in Baltimore. Hello, Claude. Hey, how you doing, my friend, tonight? I'm hanging in there. Thanks, Claude. I heard that. Well, look, we had a savings and loan here in Maryland that went under one time, and people lost all their investments to a guy named Jeffrey Levitt, who stole umpteen bucks well, um, yeah, but nobody's nobody's accusing um, so far anyway anybody at Signature or SVB at of no, stealing but, any money. No, but here's the thing: they had before this happened, they had an elaborate dinner. They got bonus checks, and their stock was sold two weeks prior to that. Yeah, so there's hanky there. Yeah, I I hear that, uh, Claude, and uh, Congressman Adam Schiff is trying to claw back, uh, I believe, some of those uh, bonuses if uh, if the workers got them. We'll see where that goes. 800-848-9222. Pamela in New Jersey, how do you see this? Uh, If you're 250,000 single joint, uh, 500,000, yes, FDIC, and if it's an FDIC bank, they should be bailed. But the people above, no. Which both of these are? Which both of these are? 
Well, these these banks were acting also very strangely, allowing Silicon Valley to put uh, deposits way above the 250 mark. So absolutely not, because we end up paying. And, uh, you know, the rules are there for a reason. And, you know, the, the banks were poorly operated. And also it does have to do with the administration and inflation and tre- treasury bonds. These banks are going out on a limb with the treasury bonds and investing in ESG, environmental social governance. And they're not doing banking. They're not sticking with banking. They're social warriors, which is uh, corrupting our banking system. Well, and let me ask you, though, Pamela, I agree with much of what you said, particularly the first part of what you said, which is that uh, going hand in hand with uh, what Simon Constable said yesterday about this uh, possibly creating moral hazard. But what if, let's say, they don't bail out the depositors that have over $250,000 in an account? And I'll be honest, that was my instinct, uh, to be kind of where you were and say, you know, follow the rules. There's big signs when you go to the bank that says insured up to $250,000. Let's say they um, don't do that. Let's say they do as as you just suggested and only cover you up to $250,000. Are you concerned that this could cause a broader run on the banks with everybody pulling their money out of the banks who have over $250,000 in account and essentially creating an It's a Wonderful Lifestyle bank run? Well, you know, when if you have a job, if you're in a union, there's something called federal credit unions. And, um, you know, they tell you, I'll put your money in here, you get higher rates. Well, there's always a little caveat to that. That means they're not covered with uh you know the fdic and you know sometimes some some businesses have to go down some people have to suffer to keep the balance well the businesses are going down the businesses are going down the question is should the depositors themselves including a lot of small businesses suffer if the people have under 250 or for joint accounts five hundred thousand, right over two um you're allowed five hundred thousand if you're a joint account right and and if they follow the rules, they should be covered. They should be covered because it, it will cause it will cause panic if you don't if you allow those other people to be covered. What the heck were they doing? They were investing in. They were acting like a federal credit union, Silicon Valley. That's really what what these kind of banks are, where they hook up with an industry, and they they get political, and then they cause a disruption in the entire system. Some banks need to go down. And I'm not being harsh. I'm being realistic. And and again, the the banks are down, Pamela. And again, I I keep saying the same thing. The banks are down. They're going to be uh, taken over by new management. The banks are done. The question is, what happens to the depositors? Let's say you have a small business. You have about a million dollars in your account. Uh, Essentially, what Pamela is saying is you should only get the first $250,000 of your deposit back not the other $750,000. Now, I am sympathetic to why she's saying it. Because, look, the rules are the rules. The rules say when you go into the bank, insured up to $250,000. You know that going in. So, on the one hand, shame on you if you're going to keep a million dollars in there. But on the other hand, let's say you're a small business, a small hardware store, or a small grocery store, um, or a chain of small restaurants. That's not unusual to have about a million dollars in a, in the restaurant's business account. Should that small business be out seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars? And would if we say you know t- 
tough luck, you're out, would that cause a, a It's a Wonderful Life style run on the bank? I'm of two minds about this, but I started out kind of of Pamela's opinion, and I've sort of I've sort of drifted more towards Andrew Yang's opinion that the depositor should be made whole. I mean, no one's arguing that the the investors should be made whole. Uh, the investors invested. Look, I've invested in companies that went bankrupt, and uh, it's not a pleasant situation. I have uh, worthless pieces of paper that uh, are worth slightly less than toilet paper. I mean, tough. That's the risk of investing. But should depositors bear that same brunt? And that's the that's the question that I have, and I don't necessarily have an answer for it. 800-848-9222. But my, I, my thinking at the moment is that the depositors should be able to get their money back. Alex is in Pennsylvania. What do you think? I think there should be a bailout, but there's a question that I want to ask you regarding people with over 250000 taking their money out. To where? Where do you well, – if you walk into a bank and you have $10 million in there, what, are you going to ask them to put it in a suitcase? <laughs> well, that's, that's exactly what Simon said yesterday. And, I mean, in theory, let's say you have a uh, million dollars. You could put it in four different accounts in four different banks. But that's a, that's a fine point. So Simon and I spoke about this yesterday. Well, what, what happened was the, the, the bank was basically – the bank basically went bust. It, uh, it 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 could no longer operate as a bank. Too much money was flowing out of it. Uh, the the government has basically t- taken it over. The depositors uh, may or may not get their money back. Um, the the limit for insured deposits is two hundred and fifty thousand per person, and there's that's a very small amount of the money that is in or that was deposited in Silicon Valley Bank. So there is the potential for a lot of people to lose a lot of money. Those people could include other companies, and that could have a roll-on effect throughout the economy. So that, that's basically what happened. It is exactly like you said, George, George Bailey in It's a Wonderful Life. You know, the, the bank doesn't have a lot of money. It, it takes a lot of money in. It lends a lot of money. And... You know, you normally have a deposit, but that's largely been lent out. And that's exactly what's happened here. Uh, One of the very disturbing things is the government is now considering bailouts uh, of of all those depositors, which causes what's known by economists as moral hazard. So if you thought the bank was going to go bust and you and you put your money in it, that would be a reckless thing a reckless thing to do. And by bailing out banks whenever they go bust, you encourage people to go where the interest rates on the deposit higher and maybe the bank is reckless. So if, if, you, if you understand that, you, you wouldn't buy pizza from, from a place that was cheap but known for food poisoning. And basically this is, you know, if, if it's dodgy, it could be like financial poisoning. I used the example when I was on a station in Atlantic City yesterday that uh, it would be like when you're playing craps, if you were told, all right, you get a free or uh, no, actually, you know what the better game is in uh, there's a Vegas casino, the, uh, the Cromwell fun casino that uh, that offers double but uh, bonus blackjack, meaning if you want to double down, you don't have to make a second bet. 
right, you can make just your original bet and then it'll pay you as if you had doubled down. Same thing if you want to split aces or eights. Um, it's it's really cool. It's a really neat uh, trick. I'm sure it affects the odds that they pay you. But I made money with that uh, free bet bonus blackjack. I loved it. Now, what if it, instead of a uh, just a free bonus for when you wanted to double down, they were to also reimburse you half of your losses overall. What do you think that would do? Chances are you would make riskier bets at the blackjack table. You'd bet $500 instead of $100, knowing, hey, look, either I win or I only lose half my money. It's a calculated risk. And that's kind of the moral hazard game that uh, Simon is talking about there. All right. Hey, uh, we have an action-packed show. We have three dynamic, beautiful, intelligent, talented women uh, joining me for the next couple of hours. How lucky am I? I tell you, what better way to celebrate International Women's Month than by talking with three international women? You saw the Academy Awards yesterday. A lot of you were as outraged as I was that Paul Servino, an actor who's actually appeared in several Oscar-nominated films, was omitted from the In Memoriam category. Well, as mad as I was, as mad as you were, I guarantee you, none of them were as mad as D.D. Sorvino. She's going to join us next. Next hour, uh, another famous last name is going to be joining us, Savalas. That's right, Ariana Savalas, the daughter of legendary actor Telly Savalas. She's going to join us. She's going to talk to us about her new album. And then in our third hour, we are going to talk a little bit about Amelia Earhart's helmet. It uh, disappeared and then reappeared after many decades. It's not quite as mystical as I just made it sound, but it is still a cool story. And she's got a, a fascinating book out about uh, Antarctica as well. Uh, with I'm going to talk with Louise Glenn Shapiro about that uh, whole situation involving Antarctica and involving Amelia Earhart. An action-packed show. Didi Sorvino, Ariana Savalas, Louise Gwen Shapiro. It's all on the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Once upon a time, a girl with moonlight in her eyes put her hand in mine and said she loved me so. But that was once upon a time, very long ago. Once upon a time, we sat beneath the willow tree, counting all the stars and waiting for the dawn. But that was once upon a time. Believe it or not, you know who this is? Listen to that voice. What a velvet voice. Listen to those dulcet tones. That is none other. 
than iconic actor Paul Servino. He was, in addition to being an actor and someone very passionate about uh, cooking, and uh, as you could hear here, a very accomplished vocalist and singer. And by the way, this audio uh, that we're playing here for you, this was taken from a live recording, right? Uh, this is not from... He had two albums that came out, but... This is not from a studio album that's uh, that's worked on and digitally remastered. This is audio that someone recorded of him singing in an auditorium. I mean, that's incredible. Sounds as good as any singer I know. Well, um, we're talking about Paul Servino because uh, whenever it's the Academy Awards, a lot of us get into sort of a a movie-oriented mode. I am certainly among them. And uh, Paul Servino, who unfortunately we lost last July, was, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, one of the greatest actors of all time. But, um, I, I, and I'm sincere about that, and I, uh, a lot of people give him credit for playing a lot of gangster roles, and certainly he did those and did those well, but he also did a great job playing police officers. And playing Worf's brother on Star Trek The Next Generation. And playing uh, an insurance lobbyist in the movie Bullworth. I mean, film after film, role after role, he was really um, just an incredibly diverse actor. And I don't think there's a role that, uh, that he's better known for, even though that's more than 30 years later than a film that was nominated for six Academy Awards, uh, and it won uh, several, and that is, of course, Goodfellas. Here's a small clip of uh, Paul Servino in Goodfellas. I don't know what, I don't know anything about the restaurant business. Nothing. All I know is to sit down and order a meal. I don't know how to make a restaurant. No, uh, not for you. It's just a place to hang. You know, I mean, the chef is great. You got to... Shows are good. It's a lot of who is coming in here all the time. I like to help you out. Look, what, what do you want from me? What am I going to do? Tommy's a bad kid. He's a bad seat. What am I supposed to do? Shoot him? Yeah, that wouldn't be a bad idea. No, I'm sorry I said that. I didn't mean to say that. I, I just mean that he's scaring me. You know, I, I just, uh, I need help. All right? Help me, please. You know, you know anything about this? restaurant business he knows everything about it i mean he's in the joint 24 hours a day i mean another another few few minutes it could be a stool that's how often he's in there you understand you want me to be your partner that's what you're trying to tell me you want me to be a partner yeah what the you think i'm talking about paulie please come on it's not even fair no you don't understand the joint is over you run the joint Maybe I'll, I'll try to help you, all right? God bless you, Paul. Okay. I appreciate it. God bless you. Always been fair with me. All right. This is one of those rare instances that I'm sorry we do a radio show instead of a TV show because so much of the great acting in that scene that I just played for you is not just Paul Servino delivering the lines. It's his facial expressions. Here's a guy that could say more with one raised eyebrow or one taken aback glance than I could in four hours. And yet, in spite of his incredible contributions to Academy Award nominated and winning films like Goodfellas, like The Firm, like The Gambler, like Reds, like Bullworth, like The Cooler, in spite of all that, in the in memoriam section yesterday, he was omitted. 
Uh, now, you may be ticked off about it. I know I am. Uh, but we've got nothing on D.D. Sorvino. D.D. Sorvino, in addition to being a Republican strategist and an Emmy Award winning TV personality, happens to be the widow of legendary actor Paul Sorvino. And she's a friend of mine as well. I was recently on her podcast. D.D., it's great to talk with you. I'm, I'm sorry it's under these circumstances. Well, hey, Frank, uh, you're a friend, and I appreciate what you're saying. And, yeah, I mean, I've received probably 3,000 messages like, what the heck happened? What is going on? How would this – how could they not include Paul Servino? And it is disgusting, wrong, and bizarre. Do you have any theory as to why they didn't include Paul? Well, I – tell you that, you know, I've received a million messages about, hey, do you think it's because he leans right? Do you think because he's a Republican? Do you think he's because he supported Donald Trump? Because he is pro-Second Amendment? And to be fair, I wanted to give the benefit of a doubt. But now that the day has ended, I've gone 24 hours through this crazy stuff with Entertainment Tonight, Entertainment Weekly, Yahoo!, AOL, every media outlet in the world, okay? And yeah, AOL still exists. (laughs) But between us and your audience, yeah, I think it's because he leans right, and that's why I got him in it. That's what I think. And it's very sad and pathetic because it should be a meritocracy. It should be about skill set. It shouldn't be about your politics. And Paul wasn't even that political. He's just, you know, leaned right. You yeah. know, he leaned the right way. I, I so guess it's really sad and pathetic. I guess the same could be said of uh, of Tony Sirico, who I noticed was also left out there uh, last night. But uh, unlike Tony Sirico, uh, Tony was best known for his work as a television actor. Paul was in a lot of films that uh, that were nominated and won Academy Awards, and his daughter even won an Academy Award. He'd attended the awards ceremony. To me, uh, I mean, I understand you can't uh, honor every single person in most. Pictures oh, that die. Yeah, exactly. If you're going to honor somebody, of all people, the entire list, Frank, Paul is number one. Number one. There's no doubt about it. Everyone knows it. Of the, of the old great movie stars, the end of the movie star age, you've got Paul Servino, Bobby De Niro, and Al Pacino. You know, all Italians, and they don't include Paul. Absolutely a message. Total crap. And it's very upsetting. And I have to tell you, I mean, seriously, I've been up, you know, this is 24 hours from when this began. Right. I've had almost no sleep, so I'm perfect for your show right now. <laughs> and everybody's saying, well, you know, it's because he supported Trump or because he leans right or because he's not woke. Well, you know, at this point in time, I believe it. Because there's no other explanation. There's no other theory. They can't say he's not a great actor. They can't say that he hasn't been in enough movies because he was in 200 movies. They can't say he didn't do enough. They can't say he was, wasn't well-liked enough. I mean, it, it's ridiculous. So the only thing that makes sense is the political crap that we're dealing with right now. It's the only thing that makes sense. Now, I could, if this was somehow an honest mistake, an honest oversight on the part of the Oscars, which I don't believe, because honestly, if you were to do a simple Google search, um, you know, you could see the actors with the most Academy nominated credits that, that passed away last year. If this was an honest mistake somehow, 
I would think somebody from the academy would call you, call your family, and say, look, I'm sorry, we just goofed. Has anybody from the academy reached out to you to explain or apologize? No, a very, I can't even say lukewarm. It's like a tepid response of, oh, this is how we operate. And we have a committee that decides this, and every year we've got this situation. Well, that's not acceptable. And we have been pounding this for 24 hours. I mean, in all of the press about it, you know, all the negativity, you know, the slap to Chris Rock was last year. The slap to Paul Servino and the people that were not included in the in memoriam is this year. This is a controversy this year. And it's, you know, Paul being omitted is leading the way because everybody loved Paul. And Frank, I'm telling you, it's been nonstop chaos from Fox News to Yahoo to the, even the L.A. Times. And you got to give credit to the New York Post. They were the first ones. They were out in like five minutes after it happened. They got it because Paul's a New Yorker. Paul's a legend. Paul's awesome. And they screwed him over. They screwed him over. The woke, lefty, L.A. BS committees screwed him over. And that's the truth of the matter. It's ridiculous. I, I know that they, uh, after the list was, uh, after the list was aired, the people that they showcased, they directed people to their website for a longer oh, yeah, list. Was, was Paul included at least on the longer list? Well, yeah. But that was part of like what I said to the press. I said, I'm sorry, but the QR code is not acceptable. <laughs> it doesn't work. You know, it, it, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to the Academy, not to my husband, you know, not to my late husband, because he was the best guy in the world and an, an amazing actor, Renaissance man, a wonderful Italian. Believe me, the Italians are up in arms. <laughs> You know, I mean, like I was on with Joe Piscopo, you know, Joe, of course, early this morning, and he was just going to town on it. He said, we're incensed. We've got to do something about this. This is crazy. So, you know, the Italians get it. I mean, why would you omit Paul Servino? Paul Servino is like omitting Al Pacino or Bobby De Niro. What's up with that? Right. No, it would why? be it would be like, um, you know, if you're mentioning famous Yankees uh, that have passed away and you don't mention Mickey Mantle and Babe Ruth. I mean, that's kind exactly. of that's kind of the the equivalent. And uh, li- like I said, if this was an honest mistake, I would think a simple phone call from somebody who uh, produced the show to you, to Mira, to uh, to the re- to other members of your family to explain, look, uh, we, we goofed, we omitted this by accident, we apologize, we'll do something uh, to uh, to make this up, that would have occurred. But you're saying that that didn't occur, which leads me to think that some for some reason, whether it's political or something else, that it was strategic. Exactly. Because we've been at this for, again, 24 hours. So much press about it. And Paul led the way. It's like, how in the world does Paul Servino not be included in in memoriam and frank all to give credit or credit to all the other award show even the baptist even the british award show and they had paul because you know they're in the same movie together ray died two months before paul but you would not have ray and not paul so there's something up but you know ray wasn't political but paul was pauline Wright. 
Right, and and I uh, obviously I, I like Ray Liotta, and I'm glad that they remembered to acknowledge yeah, so him. But but um, you know, Paul actually had a much longer list of film credit critic uh, credits and a longer list of Academy Award nominated film credits than uh, than Ray Liotta. So it does seem to be a uh, very peculiar. Is there anything else that it could be, D.D.? Did he, uh, did he, uh, I don't know, did he, did, he, did he get into a fist fight with somebody from, on the board of the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences at one time or another? Yeah, I don't think so. And I will tell you that if you look at what they're planning for the next two or three years, it's all about woke politics. It's all about they have to have certain percentages you know, of different types of people uh, that win, you know. So Paul just doesn't fit their category, apparently. You know, it's not right. It's very, very, very liberal, and it's getting more liberal by the year. Next year is going to be worse, and they just don't have any use for old-school Italian conservative Second Amendment guy because there is no way— that Paul Servino should be omitted from any list whatsoever, and certainly not this. After the man died seven months ago, how to be disrespectful, that's how you be disrespectful. And the whole country's up in arms. I mean, I couldn't even keep up for the last 24 hours. I've had message after message after message after message. How could this happen? It's disgraceful. There's no respect. What's going on? Paul's a great actor. He's the best in the world. How can this be? So this was personal. This was clearly personal. It was not a mistake. And I appreciate the fact that you want to give the benefit of doubt. And about 6 o'clock this morning, noon, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, but by the time we got to late afternoon, I'm like, no, no, this is personal. This is not a mistake at all. Didn't get an apology. And I have been railing on it. And then Mira followed up, you know, kind of piggybacking on what I did. And And, you know, and because she won an Academy Award, you know, made, they made it even a bigger deal. So we've been, you know, really pushing this campaign of like, well, how can you do this? And I said, you need to apologize and you need to fix this. No, no. All they did is say, well, this is our process. See ya. Now, Don't want to be here. And if people are uh, just tuning in, we're talking with uh, D.D. Servino. In addition to being very accomplished in her own right, a podcast host, an Emmy Award winning TV personality, a Republican strategist. She's also the uh, she also wrote a book, a cookbook, which is on my bookshelf. I'm very honored to have a signed copy uh, by both D.D. and Paul. She's the widow of a legendary actor, Paul Servino. And D.D., you know what the, the biggest shame of this is? The Academy, the full name is the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And there was no greater artist, not just an actor, than your husband. In addition to his roles as an actor, which, as I mentioned, go far beyond being an actor, he was a sculptor, a painter, an author, a poet, an opera singer. And this is exactly the kind of career, exactly the kind of life that you would think the Academy would be celebrating and encourage artists to emulate. You never heard about him getting embroiled in a Me Too scandal. You never heard about him getting into a fist fight with paparazzi. You never heard about him slapping someone at an award show. You never heard anything negative about any any degree of personal scandal at all. He was somebody that clearly loved art, that loved education, and loved the movies. And to see him kind of snubbed by his peers like this is really uh, particularly galling. 
Agreed. And I'm just wondering if this was like, you know, because the Academy said, well, we have different levels of people that look into this. I'm thinking it's like a, maybe a bunch of 26-year-old woke liberal actors that yeah, don't even get it. I mean, it could be that. I mean, that that is possibly the situation. But I just think he leans right, and they're like, you know, we're just going to snub him because we don't have to include everybody. And then what about, you know, why don't they just show – uh, the actors and the artists that have died instead of a performance. Not that I have a problem with Lenny Kravitz, right. but you know, frankly, I don't care about the performance. I care about honoring, you know, and, and not just Paul, others that were snubbed, but Paul is the perfect candidate for this, as you just said, astutely. Yeah. And it is just a shame and it's upsetting and it's terrible. And I've cried about it several times. This isn't right. It's wrong. It's terrible. Paul Servino is a perfect candidate for this. He, you know, he's kind of the beacon of the Academy Awards. Absolutely. Ridiculous. Absolutely. He's perfect. He, he's, the, he's the perfect artist to get this award. And they snubbed him. They snubbed the man. They snubbed the legend. It yeah. is ridiculous. And you know what it is? It, it would have taken so little. I mean, it would have taken uh, about so four, three and a half seconds to throw a name up you? there in a photo Put to make name up there. That's uh, all this go break. away. It's crazy. Uh, if people, by the way, want to get the uh, cookbook that you wrote with uh, with your husband, Paul, it's uh, Pinot Pasta and Parties. It's still available on Amazon. I uh, really enjoy the uh, cocktail recipes and the party prescriptions that you offer and and then uh, my wife and I will will give our best attempt at making some of Paul's recipes. But he's a, a much more accomplished chef than uh, than we ever were. Hey, uh, Dee Dee, I had the good fortune of being on your podcast, uh, Drinks with Dee Dee, last week. That was a lot of fun. I linked to it; people can see it. But uh, and for which for some reason turned into an unhinged, profanity laden <laughs> rant against the city of Yonkers. So if anyone in the city of Yonkers is listening, do not watch this podcast. And uh, uh, if you Everybody do watch... loves you, Frank. You were a big star. <laughs> I was like, oh, we love that guy. We got a talk. Well, no surprise because you're so popular. And by the way, congratulations on your show. I understand you're like the number one show overnight. Well, I, I appreciate well that, uh, Dee. But if people want to listen to your podcast, Drinks with Dee, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, all you've got to do is look at all the podcast platforms, you know, Drinks with Dee. It's on Roku, YouTube. But, you know... And I love that, and I thank you for that. But right now, I'm still on a tirade about Paul. Sure. So if people would follow me on social media, on Instagram, Didi Sorvino, Didi GOP, on Twitter, and then Facebook, Didi Sorvino, I retweet everyone who is supporting Paul. And it's been thousands, so I've been retweeting, and I've been sharing all day. And, you know, all last night, all day, because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still furious about this. And I'm still all about poor Paul. You know, here Paul is a legend. He's completely disrespectful by the, disrespected by these people. Thank you for the book. Thank you for the support. Thank you support for the podcast. But I'm so loyal to my late husband. I am not over this. Yeah, so it, I'm going to still promote him, promote Paul Servino, and just say how the Academy was just wrong. And, and let's always remember such a wonderful man and someone who deserves the respect Absolutely. that he did not get. Absolutely. Uh, D.D., uh, come to New York soon. We'll do our own memorial for, for Paul. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll toast a couple in his honor, okay? Yeah, and we'll make it happier. I'm still just in angry mode. <laughs>
I'm just still in like mafia mode. Like I'm ready to shoot them up. Right? Totally I'm not understand. Do it, but I'm thinking about it. Totally <laughs> understand. Hey, thanks, Dee Dee. I appreciate it. Keep us posting on this, please. Oh, will do. Will do, my dear. Thank okay. you. Uh, D.D. Sorvino, if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. side of midnight they say march is uh, international women's month uh so we happen to have three terrific women on uh, the program today you just heard dd sorvino next hour we're going to talk with ariana savalas and then uh, coming up in our third hour we're going to talk with the uh, an award-winning journalist and uh, documentarian Lori Gwen Shapiro. I'm very much looking forward to that conversation. Hey, next hour, if time permits, we're going to go through your mail as well. If you would like to email me and get your message read on the radio, you can even if it's critical. By the way, in fact, if it's critical and funny, we will probably put it to the top of the list. You can email me at frank dot at wabcradio.com. That's Frank dot M O R A N O at WABCradio.com. A lot of people uh, patiently holding, though, 800-848-9222. I'm betting a lot of you are still bearing the brunt of daylight saving time and this absurd spring ahead situation. I'll tell you who's feeling it. My son, Carmine. My son, who normally gets up 645, 7 o'clock, yesterday, first day of daylight saving time, he slept till 8 which threw off our whole schedule, and that means his second nap wasn't until 3.30, and then my wife had to wake him up at 5 p.m. so that he wouldn't stay up super late and then go to bed super late and create this vicious cycle. So I put him to bed around 8 o'clock, and he was like still talking in bed and still stammering and walking around in his crib until about 8.30. So I'm hoping he will get up early tomorrow, but he's having a tough time adjusting. You know what? So is everybody else. This barbarism of daylight saving time needs to end. And if you thought I was fired up about this before, now that it is affecting my 15-month-old son, I'm even more fired up about it. 800-848-9222. Mary Beth is on Long Island. Hello, Mary Beth. Are you breaking my heart about Carmine? Oh, and it's hard for his parents, too. Oh, that's for sure, especially 
for me, uh, when I, I sleep during the day, uh, my wife, she woke me up uh, at, at 1030 and she said, you know, I have to do this Zoom call. Can you stay with Carmine? Because usually he's asleep at that time. And obviously, obviously I did. Hey, Mary Beth, I'm going to put you on hold because I don't want to shortchange you here. And we only have about 20 seconds left. So hang on and we'll get uh, we'll get to your comment on uh, whatever you want to talk about. Kevin, Steve and uh, everybody else that's on the line. Meantime, if you want to be heard on anything we're talking about, the bailout issue, uh, Paul Servino's omission, daylight saving time, you can give me a call, 800-848-9222. Hey, I hear my friend Andrew Giuliani is en route to the building, so I'm going to invite Andrew to poke his head in with us. He just got in from a flight, uh, and he was coming right here from the airport, so we'll take advantage of him. We'll make him talk for a few minutes. All right. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, this is a real treat. Hey, by the way, people listening on WABC in New York, you might have heard my top of the hour commentary that airs just on WABC locally. And if you're listening around the rest of the country and you want to hear that, uh, you could just subscribe to the podcast Frank Morano Interviews and More. There's some good stuff in there, including the commentary that I just did, if I don't say so myself, on uh, Andrew Cuomo possibly running for U.S. Senate next year. And I mentioned... Before I knew that he was going to be in the building, I mentioned the name of Andrew Giuliani, who is uh, straight from JFK Airport to our radio station, the Bernard McGurk Studio, and uh, he's kind enough to jump in and spend some time with us. Hello, Andrew. Frank, I mean, you mentioned my name, and here we go. I you're show like, up, uh, and you know, a third of Beetlejuice. That's I only exactly have to right. Once That's you exa- and I appreciate the Enter Sandman because I actually believe it or not have my Mariano Rivera Foundation thing on. So this is just uh, the stars are aligning. Kismet. Kismet. Now, you and I have uh, children that are about a week apart, right? Now, um, I mentioned that for the last day or two, my son has been so screwed up Mm -hmm. with his normal bedtime, normal wake-up time, normal nap time because of uh, daylight saving time in this uh, spring ahead. How's your little girl Grace doing? You know, last night she didn't get to sleep till after 10 o'clock. So, I mean, you know, really had some issues. You there. always keep her up a little later, though. Right? Yeah, she is. Oh, yeah. My we normally kind of I say her window to fall asleep is like eight thirty to nine fifteen. So it's actually like eight to nine fifteen. Um, and she only did it one nap today, I think. So I think you are right. I think she was having some mm. issues right there. And I'm with you on this. Daylight savings time just has to go. I mean, there's nothing like that first day, that Sunday, even if you are tired looking and it's seven fifteen. 7.30, and there's still sun out there. That's there's right. just something so optimistic about that. That's right. You want that all year. Now, I um, I mentioned to you when you were running for governor privately right. that I thought that you should make this a huge issue in your campaign, and most political analysts believe that had you done so, you probably would have won. Yeah, well, you know, I, you're right. So. You know, it's funny because I remember actually uh, President Trump wanted to make this an issue in his reelection campaign. And at the time, Mick Mulvaney was his chief of staff, uh, and the decision was not to make it an issue or as big of an issue because they thought all the mothers 
would be upset by it because they'd be putting their kids on the school bus for part of the year while it was still dark outside. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there was a pushback. I forget exactly which uh, grassroots group that it was, but it was some mother's groups that was pushing back against this. If it was, th- That's if it was permanent daylight saving time or if it was permanent standard time? Uh, it was a permanent uh, daylight saving gotcha. time. Gotcha. Yes, okay. exactly. Well, yeah, so I, I, look, but, I get where people are coming from. I'm, right? I'm all in on daylight savings. I, I, I think we need to get rid of the flip back. We just, I want it. Stuck right where it is Lock right now. I, I even and you know what? I, I hate the seasonal depression, yeah. but um, I will say that I do feel a little bit down in September and October versus the way that I feel right now. Even if it is terrible weather out there and it's March, I'm still I'm still happy. You always seem to have a uh, a pretty good attitude. By the way, if people don't um, don't know Andrew's history. Uh, Andrew Giuliani worked in the Trump White House. He headed the Office of Public Liaison. That's right. And uh, these days he is a uh, talk show host and an on-air contributor at WABC in New York. I understand your own show is starting March 26th. That's, that's what the ad in the New York Post said, right? That's absolutely right. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get guests like you. I mean, I heard Kelsey Grammer last week. That was spectacular. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Obviously, that. William Shatner, really, really good there. I actually feel, you know, with the Kelsey Grammer reference, I feel a little bit like Norm from Cheers, just popping in right now. I'm just waiting for the beer there, boys, on the other side of the glass. Nope. No beer for me? What, well, what's it is St. Patrick's Day week. That's true. Uh, they're storing that up for St. Patrick's Day. Uh, so uh, I know you just said you're coming in from the airport. I know you're doing the, the morning show with uh, our colleague Sid Rosenberg today. He had a, actually a pretty groundbreaking blockbuster interview with uh, Mayor Adams yesterday that uh, everybody's still talking about. Uh, where, where are you coming in from? I'm coming in from West Palm, as a matter of fact. Had a, a great dinner uh, was it Sunday night with uh, President Trump and with Kellyanne, which was great. Uh, went through kind of uh, what's on his mind. It was before, obviously, him going to Iowa. And, uh, you know, he is uh, he's he's always ready to fight. We'll put it that way. And uh, as, we, as we all see, as uh, we all see. Can, now, I'm not going to ask you to reveal any private details of the conversation, right. but I am going to ask you to reveal this. What did... Trump order for dinner. What did he have for dinner? He had the meatloaf. He meatloaf. That's meatloaf. his favorite. I've heard it's that. his favorite. He loved the meatloaf. And I will say this: uh, the meatloaf recipe that he had, that his mother's recipe, he actually brought it for the White House cooks to learn, so that way the rest of the staff could enjoy the meatloaf. And it really is spectacular. I don't want to sound too much like my former boss, but it is really the best. Now, when he orders the meatloaf, is there pressure on you to have the meatloaf? Does everybody have the meatloaf? Good question, actually. Yeah. Um, we ask the hard-hitting no, question. You know what happens? After a round of golf a lot of times, what he'll do is he'll just kind of order for the table. So it's, you know, get some wings, get some this, get some that. And I'm I'm pretty easy in terms of my eating. But I have, for Lent, I've tried to do a few different things. Giving up alcohol. I think you're same. doing the same yeah, thing, right? What a mistake that was. I, I know. It's <laughs> rough. Um, but, uh, but also I'm trying to just not eat fried or junk food. Mm. Just trying to, like, be... Like conscious in sure. every single right. meal. I'm trying so, to do the same thing. I'm trying to lay off carbs and yeah. cheese. So, uh, too. Yeah, exactly. So I did end up having fish last night. So I don't know if he looked at me and maybe lost a little respect because I had the fish and he had the meat. See, he's Presbyterian. Okay. He doesn't know what it's like to give up uh, <laughs> exactly. uh, anything for life. Um, what kind of fish was it? Uh, salmon. Oh, okay. Yeah. Great. Well, that, that's, good. Uh, that sounds good. Uh, the, how is the food at Mar-a-Lago? Is it uh, all It's very good. It's very good. It is very good. It yeah. is very good. It's delicious. That's the case. Um, they, they have uh, a great chef over there who is just absolutely spectacular, and, and uh, they do a great job really with everything. Although last night was not actually at Mar-a-Lago. It was at his golf course. Oh, I see. Which is about six miles west of Mar-a-Lago. So a lot of people think the golf course at Mar-a-Lago is on the same property. 
But it's not. This is actually a little interesting story. Certainly how he tells it, it's very interesting. But basically, in the mid-90s, he actually sued the county because they were flying uh, – Palm Beach County – Palm Beach International Airport was flying over Mar-a-Lago time after time after time. So basically, they settled that he would take this plot of land – about six miles west of Mar-a-Lago, just south of the airport. And if you look at the surrounding area of the golf course, not Mar-a-Lago, because Mar-a-Lago is on Palm Beach, surrounded by $100 million mansions. But of the golf course, you have the jail to the east. There's a strip club that's just (laughs) south, which, by the way, Stormy Daniels did perform at when he was president, and it did say Make America Horny Again on the billboard right there. You had bail bonds. You have the airport to the north. So it's kind of this eyesore. And he took this property, moved a ton of dirt, and he created one of the best golf courses in South Florida there. Now, I understand you recently got your amateur status back as a golfer. Is that accurate? I did. That's absolutely accurate. I actually, it's funny, I uh, in getting my amateur status back, you cannot accept money to play golf now like I was before. I basically... You were a pro. I was. I was a pro, and, and for those who maybe know baseball, I was kind of the equivalent of, let's say, like a double-A baseball player. Mm-hmm. Never got to the major leagues, played a little bit in triple-A, um, but that's where I was. But in getting my amateur status back, it allowed me to win a tournament on your home island, your home borough, Staten Island, the New York City Amateur Championship a couple of years ago, which was a highlight of my golfing so career. So the Giuliani undefeated streak on Staten Island continues, That's right? Exactly. 89, 93, 97, 2021, and now 2023. My father was celebrating his 75th birthday that weekend, and uh, I think the birthday party was that night. And so they have this big, big trophy. And I remember driving back, and we were going actually to a birthday party with about 30 people. I was like, what am I going to say when I get in there? Because the birthday party is already happening. So I get like a little standing ovation when I walk in, and I take the trophy, and I put it right on his table. And I said, Dad, finally the Giuliani name will be remembered in New York. <laughs> Uh, Andrew Giuliani is here. Uh, You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. We're going to talk with uh, Ariana Savalas in about 15 minutes. If you have uh, questions for Andrew, now's as good a time as any to ask them. Uh, We'll give him a good dress rehearsal of what he's in store for when he launches his own show. So if you have challenging questions, those are preferred. We'll bump you to the top of the list. 800-848-9222. This is what I was going to mention, and since we're talking about food, I'll ask you about this as well. Hidden Valley Ranch and Van – are you a ranch dressing guy? I'm not a ranch dressing no, okay. guy. And, and on, I cannot stand the ranch on buffalo wings. I'm a blue cheese yeah, on uh, buffalo wings. I, I, same. Uh, right? Okay. Uh, Hidden Valley Ranch and Van Leeuwen ice cream okay. are going to sell ranch dressing flavored pints of ice cream at Walmart star, stores nationwide between March 20th and March 28th. Will there be a part of you that's curious enough to try this? Uh, yeah, probably would be curious enough, curious enough to try it. But I really feel like I'll be throwing out the rest of that pint as soon as I try one <laughs> bite. It sounds disgusting. But I am curious enough to try it. I Look, I tried escargot one time, and I actually really liked it. Now, you're basically eating butter, butter with a little right, escargot. Right. It's but... too chewy for me, yeah. too, it's, and too buttery. <laughs> now, are you a Starbucks guy? Uh, I'm a Dunkin' guy. Dunkin', okay. I am, I know I am a Dunkin' guy. That's even more polarizing than Democrat versus exactly. Republican. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So uh, there's a new curiosity mm-hmm. uh, starting at Starbucks in Italy, but the, I think they're thinking about bringing it to the United States, and it may have already started in some stores. Olive oil 
in coffee. Uh, they're putting this new coffee out. And see, this I would try. I well, think it's Italian. called. We can get behind that. I, I mean, exactly. come on. I, I was saying this to my wife. She said before I left, she said, I would never put olive oil in my coffee. And I said to her, I so love the flavor of olive oil. I would put it in absolutely everything. Yeah, I'll give it a shot. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I said, as a paisano, we've got to give it exactly. a shot. Exactly. Right. Olive oil anywhere. 800-848-9222. Would you try ranch-flavored ice cream or olive oil-flavored coffee? We're going to get to your calls in a moment. Hey, last that I'll, uh, thing I'll ask you about this. You know, now's March Madness. Mm-hmm. So there's so much attention being paid to collegiate athletics and to the uh, changes that the, that have been made to allowing athletes to make some money, yeah. uh, which I don't have a problem with. I think they should be able to make mm-hmm. a little bit of money and making enough money for other people. You were in the rare position. You went to Duke on a golf scholarship, right? I did. And when you do that, um, is it difficult to balance sort of the demands of keeping up with the golf schedule with academics? Because I was thinking back to my own academic career, and um, you know, I was interning at radio stations and you know doing all sorts of other things. It was difficult to balance that and just doing the required minimum level of coursework. I can't imagine having to travel and be on a on a basketball team or even a golf team. What was that like for you? It was a lot. And let me clarify. I actually was not a scholarship athlete, but I was on the team. I was like a walk-on gotcha. on okay. the team there. Sorry, yeah. But yes, but the same thing. You had the same exact schedule. Um, I actually revealed this with, with Sid a couple of weeks ago that you know we would have 5.30 a.m. workouts basically uh, three to five days a week, depending on whether they're in season, out of season there. But the first time that I saw Shashevsky was walking to one of those 5.30 in the morning workouts there. And I remember being kind of so, so awestruck that the only thing that would come out of my mouth was, hi. And <laughs> he just said, hey, son, how you doing? Um, but yeah, no, it was uh, it really was a full time job. And you can see, I think that's why you have so many successful athletes that come out uh, in business because they have to really be organized uh-huh. in going through it. I, my wife will tell you I'm not the most organized guy in the world, but I think going through that process really helped me at least say, hey, look, you know, this is what you need to accomplish in, in this 15-minute period and wow. that 15-minute period. I can't imagine. I can't imagine uh, going through the workout, going having to play the golf, and then having to, you know, be ready for physics class or something. I can't imagine that at all. Yeah. 800-848-9222. Mary Beth on Long Island. Uh, we started your phone call before the top of the hour. Thanks for holding patiently, Mary Beth. Oh, you're welcome. And who better to hold for than you and Andrew Giuliani? Thank, oh, thank you. you, Mary thank Beth. You. Love you both. Um, my call was initially about um, Mira Savino, and I my heart goes out to her, and I hope that everyone who appreciated her husband's work and loved him as much will write to the Academy about this. This oh, It's not an oversight. If this was political, first of all, that shocked me. And then I thought, yeah, she's probably right. This is horrible. Didn't anybody um, who's on his par, didn't anybody who obviously respected him and hopefully was friends with him, like Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, how do they feel about this? This is disgusting. It's disgusting. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think, you know, I don't know how wide the pool of people that get to look over the in memoriam list is. I certainly don't think the other actors did, but you're right. I'd be curious to know if, um, especially people that he co starred with in movies like Goodfellas, like Joe Pesci and, uh, 
Robert De Niro have said anything in the last 24 hours about this. Hey, Mary Beth, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Uh, 800-848-9222. Johnny listening on WCBM in Baltimore. Hello, Johnny. Hey, how are you doing, guy? We're hanging in there. Thanks. Uh, okay. This is nothing but remember in the Stalin days, they would deperson you on the photographs and everything, make you a non-person. You know, I, 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 I can buy that, right? Here's why. Here's my one takeaway on it. Kirstie Alley was featured, right? And she was much more outspoken about politics than Paul Servino was. And she was in fewer major films, honestly, than Paul Servino was. And, you know, she had a lot, she said a lot of things and was very outspoken about a lot of things that were not considered PC uh, by Hollywood's definition, things like vaccines and other things of that nature. If that was the case, if it was blatantly political, why would they include Kirstie Alley but not include Paul Servino? That's what I can't wrap my head around. Okay, I'll tell you why. She's a, she's not a white male ethnic. Okay, well, so that's what Dee Dee said. She played that. Um, she mentioned that the uh, the Italian factor might have been at play as well. Johnny, thank you. Let me ask: Have they made any statement no, about this? No, that's so what I said to Dee Dee. That's what I said to Dee Dee. I said, you know, if. If it was an honest mistake, like right. an honest oversight, I would think somebody, even if it's a production assistant uh, at the that produced this uh, that this award show, would call her up or would call Mira up and say, "Look, you know, we goofed. Uh, we don't know how this happened. We're going to make sure that an oversight like this never happens again, and uh, we apologize to you, and we're going to issue a statement publicly apologizing." Yeah, that's but poor. she said that she hasn't heard anything from them wow. at all, not yeah. a peep. Yeah. So I think clearly it was strategic, and I wonder if maybe maybe it was political, maybe it was ethnic, maybe it was gender based. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the fact that the academy won't say anything about this is very troubling. I think. Yeah. I mean, you think an, an apology goes a long way. I think exactly. Just some right acknowledgement. There. Absolutely. Basically, they said, oh, "This is the way we do it. This is our process." Really? So it, was, it was just been an F you, basically. Yeah, exactly. Savino family. Exactly. And, yeah. and not just uh, not just him. I mean, there were other people that were omitted as well. Tom Sizemore, who's one one of the yeah. greatest war pictures of all time, Saving Private Ryan, mm-hmm. uh, Anne Hayes. I, I realize she didn't have the biggest career in Hollywood, but she was certainly well-known. Philip Baker Hall mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Tony Sirico, who was also in Good Thoughts. I realize he was more TV, but uh, th- to me, with Paul Servino, there's just no excuse. Yeah. 800-848-9222. Kevin is in Bayonne. Hello, Kevin. Hey, Frank. How you doing? Uh, I wanted to let you know there was a great movie called That Championship Season that Paul Servino was in. Uh, the 1957 Pennsylvania uh, Championship for best high school basketball, and they come back, and they all meet. It's a it's a great movie. I don't know if you ever saw it. You know, I actually never have. I'm reading about it now. It looks like a great picture. I've not I've not seen it. I'm ashamed to admit it, but no, I haven't seen it. it looks terrific. Right. Was, I just want to put that out there. It was a great movie. All right. I will check Thanks. it out. You got Martin Sheen and uh, Robert Mitchum in there as well. Two other great actors. Simon is in Brooklyn. Hello, Simon. Yeah, Frankie, uh, I think we had a miracle over the weekend with, I think I salute myself to Biden that he did do the bailout. It was a very smart move because, um, well, we, if we, God forbid, if it wouldn't happen, we would have been, a, forget about inflation, this whole market would have been a disaster. And uh, just the Fed, I think, has to hold off on the interest rates. I think they pushed it too far. 
So, but but he did this over the weekend. I think he he really saved a lot of people the deposits and and I think it we I think he did a great job. What, I mean, everyone salutes him. Yeah, Simon, let me get Andrew to weigh in on this. We we started the show talking mm-hmm. about this uh, SBB and Signature Bank failure, and uh, evidently the government is saying that the depositors even if they had money in there, over $250,000 are going to be able to get their money back. And some the critics of this are saying this is a bailout. Even the people – where do you come down on this? It's interesting. I was actually playing uh, golf on Saturday with the former uh, CEO, U.S. CEO of TD Bank, a guy named Greg Greg Braca, who's going to be coming on sit-in friends on WABC at uh, 640 today to talk more about it. We have a little bit of a different uh, opinion. He has, a, obviously, much more educated opinion yeah. on this than I do. Uh, the only thing that I look at is, uh, look, I think they had to do this because I think there was a risk of contagion and, and more and more people taking their money out of these mid to smaller banks and just basically uh, stashing it in City or J.P. Morgan or one of the big SIFI banks, if you will. So uh, I, I just, I just wonder... If this is going to change the risk picture of these banks going forward, I also have to look at the political side of it uh, and see that those equity and bondholders have been wiped out. Anybody who held right. uh, equities and SVB, uh, but if you had over two hundred fifty thousand dollars, which were mostly Democrats in that bank. Um, you get the bailout. Um, so I think some of the pension funds that may be actually invested from a, uh, a bond standpoint, from an equity standpoint, did not necessarily get the same bailout well, that some not. of the holders. Right. That's exactly. what everybody's saying. Right. So, so it, it does seem to me like there was maybe some political posturing. So you think maybe, maybe the in terms of being equitable, the shareholders of these banks, they should get the same bailout potentially as well. Well, then, then that's a very slippery slope, right? right in terms of that, so it's uh, it's it, that's why it's such a, a tough question to ask. All I'm kind of looking at is saying, as a bank going forward, uh, are you looking at the risk profile and saying, hey, you know what? If we make the right political connections, if the you know what hits the fan, mm-hmm. we can make these calls. Right. Um, and because of that, we're taking on some riskier assets, like it seemed like SVB ended up doing. Um, and obviously, they ended up uh, having the issues with uh, you know uh, buying out U.S. Treasuries when right. the Treasuries are one and a half percent. Now it's obviously gone up to five percent. Um, so uh, you know, I, I it's a it's a great question because if you let this fail, if you let that and Signature Bank fail, do five more banks end up coming with and one what ends up happening? Right. Um, I'm not really sure exactly where I feel if you want to let it break at this point and do it. Um, I think he did what he had to do on the short term, but I also – Biden. I think Mm -hmm. Biden did what he had to do on the short term. Uh, But I also understand that uh, Powell is one of the main reasons why we let up to it. I don't think we're going to have – uh, you know, this bank that's going to fail if you're talking about raising interest yeah. rates the way Maybe that they arose. Maybe we the brakes on raising these interest rates, right? Exactly. For a while? Exactly. Um, you have a pick in your March Madness bracket? Well, I've got to go with Duke. I'm Duke, a Duke grad. I, 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 think, I think actually Duke got the short end of the stick being a five seed, um, even though they just won the ACC championship. So they were 21 in the nation. They just win the ACC championship. I think they should have been a two or a three seed. But they're a five seed and we got to win All six right. games. I'll, I'll root for Duke uh, in, in your honor. 800-848-9222. We're going to talk with Ariana Savalas in a moment. Robert in Suffolk has a question for Andrew Giuliani. Hello, Robert. 
Hi, Frank and Andrew. Uh, I was wondering, as a lifelong registered Republican who voted for you, what did you attribute your loss in the primary to? Your message was great. I thought it was right on target on all points. That's a good question. Campaign ends. Well, Robert, I, I appreciate it. I tell you what, I think I, I we can look right at your home county, and I appreciate your support. Uh, but Congressman Zeldin did a great job driving out the vote in Suffolk and NASA, both in the primary uh, and in the general election. So when we looked kind of back at the numbers, uh, our campaign did very well in the city. We won four of the five boroughs of New York City and, and uh, the four that we did win. We won each by 16 points. Uh, but uh, Congressman Zeldin uh, was able to really drive out his base of support in Suffolk and in Nassau. Uh, and I think that was really the difference, and that's why he became the uh, the nominee. All right, Andrew Giuliani, we're going to talk with Ariana Savalas in a minute. You're welcome to stick around. I well, wouldn't blame you if you want to grab a nap. I'm going to get a couple of winks of sleep, right. but I appreciate you letting All me right. crash well, the party today. And, and exactly. I, gave I really you, love I turned the job you on to that secret sleeping spot. So I know. Just keep I know. that between us. That's going to be good. I just exactly. hope Slee was not in there with like seven <laughs> cats. He might be. <laughs> nice to see you, my friend. Thanks, Frank. All right, catch more of Andrew Giuliani on the uh, Sid and Friends in the Morning Show. He's one of the friends uh, from 6 to 10 on WABC here in New York. Well, I am excited about this. Ariana Savalas. A very talented musician, a very talented songwriter, a beautiful woman, an incredible person is going to join us in a moment. We're going to talk to her about uh, her new album, a little bit about her father's legacy. She's the daughter of uh, the incredible actor Telly Savalas and a few other areas as well. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I'm going to the graveyard where I buried my heart. She rests in pieces underneath the ground. The flowers all have died In the tears that I have cried Flooding in the salt Until they drowned Now you say you want a resurrection What once was wrath to you Is now perfection Say you're sorry This is the Dead Dance by none other than Ariana uh, Ariana Savalas. I have become a big fan of Ariana's music. I have to tell you, about a year ago, I was totally ignorant to any of Ariana's work, but I did a whole commentary on the radio uh, talking about her father, the uh, dearly departed actor, Telly Savalas, who I was a huge fan of, not only his work on Kojak, but his work in a lot of great motion pictures like uh, Kelly's Heroes and uh, some of the uh, one of the James Bond films, a number of other terrific films, uh, The Dirty Dozen, the list goes on and on. And John Katsimatidis, our owner, reaches out to me and says, you know, you should have on... 
Kelly Savalas' daughter, Ariana. She's a great person and a terrific singer. And uh, sure enough, I can't vouch for the first part because I this is the first time we've spoken. But so far, I can absolutely vouch for the second part. She's got a new album just out last week. Uh, Ariana Savalas, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hi, Frank. How are you? It's great to talk with you. I love having you on the West Coast, so it's not such oh. a, an uncivilized time for you. Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding? For a cabaret performer, this is lunchtime, so it's, it's perfect. <laughs> it's well, just I, about to get a little early snack. I love it. I want to ask you about uh, being a cabaret performer and uh, and doing uh, burlesque. Now, I, I'm sure you probably get tired of being asked about uh, about your dad all the time, and I'm, I'm sorry to add to it, but I, I know that you passed away when um, – I mean, excuse me, God forbid – that uh, he, your dad passed away <laughs> when you were only seven years old. Uh, do you have a a lot of memories of of your dad that's such a a young age especially to lose your dad well first there's no need to apologize because you know he died almost 30 years ago now he would have been 101 this year he was born in 1922 so the fact that he was so beloved that people are still talking about him and loving him and adoring him decades after his death i mean I don't think there's anything more you could possibly want as a kid. So please don't apologize for that. I, I, I will never shut up about my dad. I absolutely love talking about my dad. So, um, And as far as memories are concerned, you know, how many real solid memories do you have from when you were mm. seven? Um, you know, I, I always tell everybody, I remember my father the way that I remember amazing dreams that I've had, that they are very vivid and very you know, they're more feelings than they are concrete memories. But, um, you know, for seven years, I had the best dad in the world. I mean, he was just an absolute pussycat. So, you know, the the memories that I do have of him, I really cherish. I wouldn't trade them for anything. Do you have, uh, have you gone back and watched his work? And if you have, is there anything that uh, that's a particular favorite of yours? Oh, yeah. Uh, the the Birdman of Alcatraz mm. is my favorite film of his, one of my favorite films, even if he wasn't in it. Well, actually, I think it would be a completely different film if he was in it. He was such an amazing um, part of it. But uh, Birdman of Alcatraz is, has been one of my favorite films for, for decades. Um, I just love that movie. Um, and then I just love, you know, seeing him be a pussycat on, you know, being, you know, Bond villain on Her Majesty's Secret Service is always so fun. You know, I, I love he was so versatile as an actor. Um, you know, he's so funny, but also so incredibly full of depth uh, to play roles like um, like he did in in Birdman. It's just it's an amazing versatility, especially for someone who never studied acting. It's pretty pretty incredible. Yeah, I was just talking with Andrew Giuliani, who obviously is the child of someone famous. I've had this conversation with oh, okay. uh, with John Gotti Jr. I've had this conversation with um, with uh, John R. Gambling. Everybody that that I've ever spoken to who's been the um, the child of someone famous and then tried to craft a career in a similar business. I would think with your last name, and you made the conscious decision to keep your last name rather than to choose a stage name as other singers have, with your last name, on, on it has to be sort of tough because there must be all these heightened expectations as an actress, as a performer, as an entertainer, being the daughter of one of the most iconic actors of all time. 
Yeah, but, well, you know, my my mom would always say to me when when I'd feel self conscious about it, especially at the very beginning of my career. Um, you know, there, and and I think I was right to feel self conscious because I I do think there is an enormous privilege that comes with being the the child of of any celebrity, even if that celebrity is passed. Um, you know, people will just be interested, even you know, forget about getting you parts or anything like that. They'll just be interested to see if you suck or not. Right. Um, and that interest is a privilege, right? It's a privilege that somebody from you know the outskirts of Nebraska trying to make it as an actor doesn't, doesn't have. So it's an enormous privilege, you know, and a gift. And um, it was a gift that I felt, you know, um, really guilty about having, especially at the beginning of my career, because I thought, oh, people are only coming to see my shows because of my dad. And, uh, you know, people are only doing this or that because they want to see. She's like, yeah, there's probably a, a handful of people who are, just coming to see if you're terrible <laughs> to see if, you know, if you're any good, but you know, you can't create a career that way. Um, you know, it, it can get you uh, an open door, but if you suck, they're going to kick you right back out of it. So, you know, there's, 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 there's so much pressure that every actor or every performer um, faces. This was just a particular pressure um, that was personalized to me. Mm. Um, but I don't think my struggle was any better or worse than anything else. If anything, it's just an enormous, an enormous privilege to, uh, you know, to have a last name sure. as someone who was so beloved. I can imagine. Hey, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Ariana Savalas. Uh, she's an actress, a singer, a songwriter, a burlesque performer. And uh, her website, if you want to learn more about what she's doing, is uh, arianasavalas.com. That's A-R-I-A-N-A, savalas.com. And uh, you can see some music videos on there, some songs, some great photos. Uh, Ariana, I'm wondering, your dad did try his hand at singing from time to time. As far as I know, he never tried his hand at uh, being a uh, cabaret performer or the world of burlesque. But I'm wondering, as somebody that uh, has built a, a pretty successful career for yourself as a singer, what what review do you give to your dad's forays into singing? What review do I give? Yeah, oh have you heard God, some of the songs a, that he sang? Plus, I mean, he had a gold record in Germany for literally just talking his way through an old bread song. <laughs> He's such a pussycat. He, you know, he could read to the newspaper and get a gold record. Um, you know, he had such a, a smooth, velvety voice, and he actually had a really lovely singing voice. Uh, a very beautiful voice that ran in our family. My my late uncle Constantine uh, Gus was was also an operatic singer. So there was a lot of talent in the Savalas family, and he also happened to have a lovely voice, released records, and had a really, really beautiful tone. Um, I don't think it was what he was most known for, um, unless you're the Germans who, uh, between him and David Hasselhoff, I think they made an absolute killing. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So um, you've been uh, performing for a while now. I've become a a fan of uh, a whole bunch of your songs. Uh, Tell me about... uh, Oh, no, sure thing. Tell me about your new album, Drama, which uh, just dropped a week or two ago. My my album drama is a, a collection of music that has done nothing but give me misery and heartache. So there really was no other appropriate title that I could name the record. It's just it's just you know from writing the music to recording the music. It's just the 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 material is very very dark and depressing, which is one of the reasons that I love cabaret so much. You know, and and why I love production so much is that you can take these 
pretty miserable songs. I, I, I don't write a lot of happy music. I wish I could be someone like, you know, Natasha Bedingfield and make a make millions of dollars out of being happy. But unfortunately, um, all that comes to me when I'm at the piano is is uh, is pain and misery. So, um, you know, the songs, uh, the lyrics of the songs are, are pretty dark, but the production of the songs is is very, very anthemic, uh, glamour, cabaret rock. <laughs> we really took a lot of inspiration from the production, from all of my idols, um, you know, alt-rock legends like Peter Gabriel and Queen and David Bowie and real, I mean, cabaret performers, nobody else calls them cabaret performers, but for me, they're uh, their music's production and, um, you know, the way that they presented themselves visually is is so burlesque cabaret inspired. And um, we incorporate a lot of that into the into the record. So it had to be called drama. The um, why do you think the so many of the songs that you end up writing and performing are sad in nature? What, what are you trying to work out? You know, it's it's one of the reasons that I gravitated towards cabaret and burlesque. You know, the the history of cabaret is is actually pretty dark uh, politically, and I think I always loved the idea of taking the miserable elements of my life, more particularly my my love life in in, in years past before I met my my now boyfriend. Um, but before that, it was a it was just a, a laundry list of of, of lunacy and. For me, it was always just such a wonderful, cathartic thing to be able to take whatever horrible, um, you know, relationship that that had gone awry or something that had happened, uh, and and turn the pain into something beautiful and glamorous and sparkling and feathers. And you know, a lot of the songs that I perform in my burlesque show, if you really listen to the lyrics, they're miserable as hell. Uh, but you'd never know because, you know, we're in a, you know, a feather outfit with sequins and Swarovski crystals and telling jokes and singing songs and playing ukuleles. So people don't, um, you know, they don't leave bummed out, even though a lot of the themes that we're talking about are, are um, you know, heartache and, and love lost and, and all of that. All of that depends. Absolutely. <laughs> now, you have uh, toured with uh, Postmodern Jukebox. You've been a headlining performer with uh, with them, and I just love them. Uh, Haley oh, Reinhardt, who uh, is another one of my favorites, she's an alumnus of, uh, of Postmodern Jukebox uh, as well. And a uh, big fan Angel. of hers. But She's you, incredible. Oh, uh, well, I mean, you talk about uh, just an incredible voice. We're going to have to have her on the show again uh, oh, soon. A one-of-a-kind voice. Oh, I, no, that's for nobody's sure. Like, I can pick her voice out of a million singers. Same here. I Same was just here. watching uh, Oh, I was just watching Sex Life on Netflix. Don't tell anybody. Um, <laughs> it's uh, this hilarious show. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's very raunchy, very naughty. And all of a sudden, I just hear this beautiful songbird over about six different sex scenes. And I'm like, it's Haley. Oh my God. Oh, that's very funny. I'm sure she appreciated that. I'm sure. Yeah. I think, uh, I think it was a a lovely soundtrack. So uh, a few years ago, 
you started um, infusing your music into a, a burlesque performance. You mm-hmm. have uh, performed in Las Vegas, and it's really a very interesting, uh, a very interesting uh, amalgamation of different art forms that you use as part of burlesque. It's not really burlesque as we might have thought about it in the 1920s or 1930s. It's something very different. Explain to people exactly what you do with your burlesque performances? Oh, wow. How long do you have? Um, <laughs> well, what we like to do is, you know, the, the first burlesques that I produced um, were with dear friends of mine who were amazing musicians and performers, dancers. And for me, you know, I think a lot of musicians feel the most comfortable just sitting in front of people with a guitar or at the piano. Um, for me, the most myself I ever feel as a songwriter is expressing my music that I write in a very theatrical way. So every song that I write, the first thing that I think about is the way that we would reenact it almost as a mini musical on stage. And so then that's really the way that I look at burlesque. You know, there, there are elements of seduction and striptease and, you know, making fun and comedy out of, you know, sensual scenarios. And that's always a really, really fun element to it. But at the end of it, it's really just songwriting being told in an, in a fantastical, larger than life sort of way that I always thought that these relationships deserved. Um, You know, it just being at the piano just wasn't enough. Sometimes I had to you know, b- big feelings and big emotions deserve big productions and uh, and and big hilarious theatrical scenarios to play them out, and that's why burlesque is so much fun. Yeah, no, well said. Uh, we're talking with uh, Ariana Savalas. You've been described by uh, Las Vegas Magazine as the musical burlesque queen and the mistress of the modern Moulin Rouge. Both of those very high praise. Both of those art forms, burlesque and Moulin Rouge, they do deal, as you just alluded to, with a degree of sensuality with a degree of sexuality and uh, more than an occasional degree of nudity. How comfortable are you in terms of, uh, of uh, incorporating nudity as a part of your public performances? Well, I think uh, my Google image search history would probably <laughs> be a good indication, Frank. <laughs> my, my, my family's embarrassment level is another barometer. Um, but you, you were know, the first I, guest where I had to tell my wife, I read Google just for the <laughs> articles. Don't Instagram me. I, I, <laughs> you'll be sorely disappointed. Um, you know, it's, it's funny that you, that you asked that because I, I grew up in a, um, a Catholic all girls convent school. So the, the high school that I went to was quite literally the convent of the visitation. Right. So, um, and, and the reason that, that, that I bring that up is because I was a very, very good girl. Um, all through high school, all through my early 20s, you would, I, I don't even know if I could tell you on the radio because I've you know, known you all of five minutes, but uh, use your imagination to really, really understand that I was a, just a very, very, very good girl. And music was the way that I could express my sexuality 
in a way that was safe, right? Because I was never going on dates. I wasn't going out with guys. I wasn't, I wasn't exploring anything because I was too afraid to. And I was very, um, you know, very kept to myself in my personal life, which you would just never know if you saw me on stage. And that was all. And that's really, I think, where I became a burlesque performer is because that was always just the fun, creative, no strings attached. No one's heart is getting broken. No, you know, biblical sins are being violated. Mm. You know, it was just a, a wonderful place for me to to explore my sexuality and also to not take it too seriously. I, sure. I think that's one of the things that I love most about burlesque. You know, I was just performing with Dee Devontice uh, this past week, um, and she's just, oh my God, what an unbelievable performer. She's so beautiful and and such a such a class act. And she has this incredible diverse array of performers that that tour with her and I was emceeing her show and you know someone like Dirty Martini she's a um a New York um uh legend in in burlesque and um she really just she gets the audience to laugh um at, you know and and she has such a sensual act but there's so much comedy in it and I think there's something that just spoke to me so much about just you know after having such a a strict, um, you know, religious upbringing with sexuality all through my, you know, high school years and and for years after that, um, there was such a wonderful freedom to just be able to laugh in a song in front of thousands of people. It's just kind of a very lovely cathartic experience for me. Oh, I can imagine. Uh, that's mm-hmm. terrific. Are you uh, are you performing anywhere uh, live soon that people might be able to come see you? Well, not anywhere nearby. I am going to be, so I've, I've been on tour for the past year and a half straight without a break. So right now I'm on a little bit of a hiatus. I just got finished uh, performing with Zita, which was amazing. Um, and then uh, I'm going to be doing a few shows here and there, but my real tour is going to be starting in June. And I'm going to be in London for three months performing at... Oh just an incredible uh, burlesque, um, just a legendary place called the Windmill in Soho in London. And I'll be um, an artist in residency headlining their show for, for 12 weeks. So so that'll be really fun. I haven't even announced that yet. So you're the first to hear it. Wonderful. But, well, um, we're also going to be coupling that with a U.S. tour. So definitely, definitely very soon to, uh, tour dates will be announced. And look, um, I, you got to come back because I, I have a l- ton of other stuff that I could ask you about, but we're just about out of time. Let me just ask you. Sure. Let me just just ask you this last year it was the it was reported this week that last year was the first year in decades that vinyl records have outpaced cd sales tell me as what you tell me what you see as the future of how people are enjoying music is your record on vinyl uh, do you see vinyl's uh, dominance in terms of a non-digital form of medium continuing to grow or is this basically a reflection of most people get their music digitally now and uh, records and cds are in sort of a race to the bottom tell me how you view the music industry and how people are going to be consuming music going forward well you know i'm no expert frank but as an artist I can just say how truly grateful I am that that patrons of art and music are are paying for music, right? Because there was just such a, um, you know, there was such a long time where I think that people are so used to everything being, um, you know, free. You could rip everything off online and this and that, and 
um, especially for indie artists like me, um, you know, I can't tell you how grateful we are. I don't honestly couldn't care less the way that you stream my music, whether you, um, you know, you listen to it on Apple Music or Tidal or whether you uh, purchase a CD or whether you come to my live stream shows or you come to my, uh, you know, shows in person and, and buy a record that I'm happy to sign for you. It's just, you know, especially especially indie artists, I think, you know, people don't realize just how much it means to us when, um, you know, when people go out of their way to, to purchase music. Um, it's, it's what's going to keep it alive, especially in a generation of, of TikTok and social media where um, a lot of entertainment comes very quickly and for free. And so there's the risk of uh, beautiful music and art and creativity being cheapened or being demonetized. And then, you know, again, I don't, I don't necessarily think of artists as very greedy sure. people. I think, uh, I think the last profession you would choose uh, if you really, really wanted to make a, a crap ton of money is, is being anything in the arts. <laughs> and, and, and you hope to get really lucky, but you just kind of uh, assume that, uh, you know, that's not going to be your, your number one priority. But um, you know, I think that this new generation, especially, um, and also uh, fans of mine of all ages, have really gone out of their way to, you know, to to stream and to and to buy online and to come to my shows. And um, I speak for every artist that I know when I say that just people making that small effort to not just look at things for free or to rip things off or to you know, go online and, and, and really just support, uh, you know, artists, especially indie artists is just, I, I personally could, could care less how people listen to music as long as it continues to, to be something that's celebrated and that people are willing to pay for, not just because, you know, um, you know, because I, I believe that they should, but also just so that artists can make a living and keep right. making music that, um, you know, that people enjoy, which is so important. Um, Ariana, I've really enjoyed this. I hope we can do this again soon. And uh, I hope too. to see you perform so live sometime soon. Thank you. I hope so, too. We'll get your booty to London. We'll we'll put your front row. <laughs> You'll so- get an eyeful. Bring your wife. <laughs> Sounds good. We may uh, we may take you up on that. Uh, Ariana Cervales, uh, check her out at uh, her website, arianasavales.com. That's Ariana with one N. Thank you very much. We'll, we'll talk again soon. I appreciate it. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, conversation, you can do so at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Meantime, I can't have a conversation that involves Telly Savalas without at least thinking of the film Kelly's Heroes. We're going to have a lot of fun here. Are we, cowboy? You can bet your boots on that, partner. Sergeant, partner. Right, Sarge. All right. Go. Yeah. I think I've got the crabs. We're going to buy our laundry. We're going to set up a little shower area so we can wash our cute little bodies. Right, Barbara? Barbara, shut up! Shave. A little wine, women, and song. A little Chiquita View, Pachuca, okay? It's going to take a little time to get organized, but I want that farmhouse to look like a nightclub. Little Joe, I want you to set up a bar. We ain't got no booze. We ain't got no booze. Well, we're going to get some booze. Now, I'm going to go down to Battalion, see if we're going to lay my hands on some dirty movies, and when I come back... I want that farmhouse not only clean, but completely decorated. Do you understand that? All right, Corporal, follow out. Let's get moving. The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's The 
other side of midnight with Frank Morano. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. And there's no tenderness like before in your fingertips. You're trying hard not to show it. But baby, baby, I know it. You've lost that love and feeling. I tell you, Telly Savalas really did have a great voice. His daughter was correct. 800-848-9222. So uh, I didn't expect Andrew Giuliani to drop by. This is, this is what I love about this show. This is why live radio is so great. Anything can happen. You never know what's going to happen on this show. So I didn't expect Andrew Giuliani to drop by, and then uh, I didn't expect to keep Ariana Savalas for so long, but I was just really interested in in her story. So what we're going to do, we're going to do the mail here, but uh, we're going to move the mail to our final hour after the $1,000 minute. So you still have time to email me and get your letter in. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. That's Frank.M-O-R-A-N-O at WABCRadio.com. Everybody that's holding, I will get to your calls as well. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. For the last three minutes, I did something that I rarely do. Normally, at the top of the hour, for the top of the hour break, I, it's my longest break of the show. I have three, three and a half minutes. So I will usually get up and stretch my legs. I'll walk to the water machine and get some water. I'll use the restroom. I really just get up to stretch my legs. I, I find that it keeps you limber. It keeps you alert. And they say it's healthier for you rather than just sitting for four straight hours. But I did not. And who knows? Maybe maybe if this hour I sound to you uncharacteristically dim-witted, now you know the reason why. The blood is not flowing to my brain quickly enough. It's because I had to reread an article that I read in the Wall Street Journal this weekend. And once again, just as occurred when I read this over the weekend, I found myself slamming my fist on the console in agreement with everything this person has said. Let me give you some background. I am passworded out. I am so sick of needing a password for everything. And I've said for years, literally years, you can go back and check the record, that it just makes no sense that everyone's data is getting stolen every single day, and yet we have to enter 500 passwords a day. All right, you put in a password for your phone. All right, then you put in a password to turn on your computer. You put in a password to get into your email. You put in a password to pay your bill. Put in a password to go on Facebook. Put in a password to go on Instagram. Put in a password to get onto your bank. And, oh, so many of these are passwords that need to be changed every month, every two months. And heaven forbid 
You have the auto fill out. Okay, well, no, that's not your password anymore. Try again. Okay, it's not blah, 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 blah. It's got to have capital letters. It's got to have lowercase letters. It's got to have numbers. It's got to have special characters. Okay, it's not um, Apple 1267 pound. Let me see if it's Apple's 1267 pound. Okay, it's not Apple's 1267 pound. Let me see if it's Apple's 1268 pound. Okay, now I'm locked out of my uh, account. Uh, you'd be for too many unsuccessful attempts. It's just, it drives me absolutely up a wall. It, it just has been a pet peeve of mine for a long time. You know, I wanted to go into my, you know, our, our company uses paychecks and I wanted to go to go on to paychecks. And I thought I had it so that uh, it would get me in with a fingerprint because you don't have to change your fingerprints every month. Apparently not. Still had to enter a password. I entered the wrong password. Now I'm locked out of my paychecks. I followed the instructions to reset your password. That didn't work anyway. I can't tell you the amount of time that I don't have that I am spending trying to remember what my password to everything is or resetting things that um, require a password. And, you know, you could write them all down. Heaven forbid someone gets that list. Well, does your company network or a frequently visited website force you to come up with a new password because it is declared that your old one is past its expiration date? Well, this column in the Wall Street Journal this weekend by Christopher Mims was beautiful, it was brilliant, and I just linked to it on my Facebook page if you didn't read it, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. Headline, Annoying Password Rules Actually Make Us Less Secure. It turns out, forcing users to change their passwords, mandating special characters are outdated but persistent rules. Some bits of old-world password wisdom have actually turned into a bit of a religion. So if you find this system of letters, numbers, special characters, change it every week, change it every month, if you find it as annoying as I do, you're not alone. And according to the researchers that Christopher Mims spoke to for his column, what's worse, it's actually bad for cybersecurity. The scheduled replacement policy is one of a number of poor or ineffective password practices that made logging on to apps, sites, and services more complicated and annoying than ever. And we're not just talking about issues with government and corporate IT systems, though they are among the worst offenders. Companies and services like Apple, Microsoft, Instagram, LinkedIn, among others, all have less-than-optimal password policies, according to a research paper by researchers at Princeton University. It's a school that uh, George Santos graduated with a Ph.D. from. These password policies can increase the chance that individuals' accounts can be breached, especially if users aren't using additional means of securing their accounts, such as two-factor authentication. That's the word from Arvind Naranyan, who's a professor of computer science at Princeton and one of the authors of the paper on bad password policies. Compelling routine password changes, for example, while a seemingly logical way to reset a password that may have been leaked actually tends to make people more likely to choose weak passwords in the first place. Yes, that's the case with me. 
According to study after study, you know how long, and this is not my password on anything now, so don't try to use it. But do you know how long my password was AB123456? Because I had to use it for so many different things that I had to use it. Okay, then came the alphanumeric numeric era. Then it, I used capital A, one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, then came the era of it's got to be between 8 and 20 characters. Then I would use capital A, lowercase b, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Then came the era of capital letter, uh, capital letter, lowercase letter, numbers, and special characters must be between eight and twenty characters. Capital A, lowercase b, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven pound. So it's true. Um, it, another flawed but common practice is to limit the combinations of characters one can use in a password, or compel users to include these special characters in their password. It turns out those rules don't generally lead to more secure passwords either. It's true that in the future, and I hope uh, this is the one aspect of all our DNA being uploaded to a giant supercomputer that I actually don't mind, it's true that in the future we might be able to do away with passwords for some accounts, and companies are getting better at defending from cyber attacks once hackers get in, but for now... Passwords remain the near-universal front door to accessing not only our personal accounts, but those of countless other critical systems. And that's the word not from Christopher Mims or Frank Morano. That's the word from Lori Craner, a professor of password and privacy technologies at Carnegie Mellon University. Dr. Craner is somewhat unusual in the cybersecurity field and that her research is as much about human behavior as it is about the technology that we build and use. By looking at how regular people actually respond to the cybersecurity policies, including password rules set by organizations, she's discovered a few basic facts about most of us. Listen to this. And this is going to be an oversimplification, but if you want to read more, read the whole article. I just linked to it on my Facebook page. Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. When it comes to cybersecurity, people are smart but lazy. We're also, it turns out, remarkably predictable. Mix all these traits with cybersecurity policies that are well-intentioned but focus on rules rather than outcomes, and the result is a potential bonanza for hackers who can exploit the weak passwords and other bad security habits that result. One of the most persistent and widespread bad password policies is the demand that users regularly come up with a new password for one of their most critical accounts. That's typically a work thing. This policy goes back literally decades. The original idea was that if a password were breached, a periodic reset would shut an attacker out of a system. But because of that smart but lazy principle of human behavior... When you force people to regularly update their account passwords out of frustration, they tend to choose the simplest possible password the system will accept. That's what I just said, that I did. Turns out, I'm just an average, ordinary human. Much to my chagrin, and I'm sure you're surprised. In the face of repeated forced resets, people tend to do things like modify their existing password, hello, in some entirely predictable way, such as incrementally increasing a number on the end of it, according to Dr. Craner. Hello, this is what I do. I'm betting a lot of you do the same thing. People may think they're being clever by doing things like this, 
But hackers know all these tricks. One reason is that the web is full of databases of millions of stolen passwords. So if you think of a hacker as a kind of social scientist and a student of the human mind, these databases are like giant data sets for them to study. All the way back in 2016, when Dr. Craner was the chief technologist at the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, she began publicly urging companies to stop asking users to do this. And in 2019, Microsoft, to their credit, stopped recommending that IT administrators mandate periodic password resets, calling the practice an ancient and obsolete mitigation of very low value. Hello. That's what uh, that's what Solomon King used to do. If he'd ever, you know, with Solomon King, whenever he would do an impersonation and then you would you would shout out the person whose impersonation that he was doing. He'd point out the person who was correct and say, hello. So this policy persists. It doesn't work. It doesn't keep us more secure. And we're still doing it. Why are we still doing this? One reason is that if you're in charge of security at a company, adding more rules and restrictions looks good to bosses. Whereas if you take away such rules, company leaders may question whether that's wise, according to Dr. Craner. Another issue is that official guidelines from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which are treated by many as the gold standard for cybersecurity policies, didn't stop recommending regular password resets until 2019. Weirdly, some old bits of password wisdom have turned into a religion. So... Another common sin of corporate password policies, including those set for consumers by companies such as Amazon, Netflix, Zoom, is allowing users to set as their password the most common and most easily guessed options. Want to make your Amazon password 12345678? You can. Another bad password policy that is also a chronic annoyance to many of us is the rule that you have to include special characters in your password. In days of yore, the rationale behind this rule was that special characters could foil attackers by making passwords more complicated and therefore harder to guess. But in the real world, this turns out to be just another incentive for people to make short, guessable passwords and then, say, add an exclamation mark to the end. So I think we need to rethink this whole idea of how we manage our password policies. And the last section of this article is to, it says, send this to your IT administrators. And I'm going to. So what exactly are some of the best practices for password and cybersecurity policies? First, companies need to stop forcing users to regularly reset their password. Now, do we have that for our email? Do we have to keep resetting our password? There's a um, like a managing app that you can put in passwords for certain yeah. for email or for um, any website that we use, like we post the shows and those kinds of things. Because I don't remember being asked to change my email password recently. No, 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 not for email. But there is an, a managing app, and if you just like opted out of it, then it probably won't pop up for you anymore. I see. Okay, yeah, I, um, I, I probably did. So, so our company is already doing this, but 
Um, number one is stop making people change their passwords. Second, don't allow people to use any passwords that appear on publicly available lists, lists of leaked and easily guessed passwords. Third, provide real-time password strength estimates as someone is typing out their password and make sure this tool is informed by up-to-date research. Fourth, don't require special characters in a password. Fifth, it is okay to encourage people to use longer passwords than they typically might. Um, in addition, mandating that users adopt device-based two-factor authentication, which we have at our company, we do have that, can radically increase the security of any given account. I am all for this, and I just, while I was speaking, I just emailed this to our IT administrator. And uh, I hope you will, too. So read the article. Send it to your IT administrator. If you want to comment on it, you can. Frank.morano at wabcradio.com if you want to email me on this. If you want to comment on it by phone and be heard, you can do so. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let me begin by saying hello to Deborah in New Jersey. Hello, Deborah. Hi, Frank. How are you? Uh, did you ever see the Twilight Zone episode with Kelly Savalas, oh, the doll? Absolutely. Talking Tina. Yes. Wasn't it great? Uh, it is so scary, that oh, episode. Oh, yes. I actually found, when, when I first saw that, uh, I the episode is actually called The Living Doll, but the doll in the show is oh, called the Talking doll, Tina. Yes. But uh, th- that episode I found scarier than the movie Child's Play with Chucky, even though Chucky oh, is yeah. overtly oh, killing I- people. Uh, That is a great episode. Uh, I have another question. Um, When are you going to have on uh, Uncle Floyd again? You know, uh, that's a great question. I owe him a phone call, and uh, I will reach out to him this week, and I will schedule something. And I have to tell you one thing. The other night you had the Joe Franklin, um, you were talking about him? Yes. Remember? I was. And um, he did. He he introduced a group uh, called the Druids of Stonehenge. Yeah, I, 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 I remember that, yes. That I looked them up. They're really good. I know they're from a long time ago, but I said, "Wow, what a group!" They, so that was very interesting. Yeah, Thank you for see, that. Joe still helps us uh, explore oh, and find new things even after his death. I was like, "Who is this group?" And it was very good. Thank you so much. Thank you, Deborah. Hey, you know, I'm in this group text message with my neighbors. My neighborhood is it's like a perpetual block party. Okay. And it's bad enough, not bad enough, I'm joking. It's it's bad enough that we're all spending all of our time together whenever it's above 50 degrees. We're all outside, you know, uh, sharing outdoor drinks, having each other's kids play with one another, petting one another's pets, smoking cigars. And it's a really vibrant block where everybody socializes with one another. But now this has expanded to the world of a group text. So after my neighbor, John Charles, had his party on Saturday, there were all sorts of comments and memes going back and forth on the group text. And I don't know why, but my neighbor, Greg, shared a like an iconic photo of Joe Franklin with a cigarette. And it's a black and white photo. It's kind of a famous photo of Joe Franklin with a cigarette. And I said to him, I didn't know you were a Joe Franklin fan. And he didn't say why he shared that. It really didn't seem to make sense, given the history of the group text. It seemed like a bit of a non sequitur. But I was glad that he shared it because it gave us an opportunity to uh, talk a little bit about about uh, about Joe Franklin. 
And maybe it's not a cigarette. Maybe it's a cigarello. It's a famous, it's a famous uh, photograph. I just Googled Joe Franklin cigarette, and it's the first thing that, uh, that comes up. All right, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe. Yeah, Frank, I have a couple of things I want to bring up on Teddy Savalas. I see that he went apparently to the same high school as that superstar quarterback, Vinny Testaverde, oh. which is interesting, yeah. Uh, and uh, on the interview, I thought she had a really good speaking voice, Ariana. She could do an audio book. Uh, when she's, you do wonder uh, if you're going to go nude on stage, would you identify yourself as a nudist? I, I don't know if you would. Uh, it's like someone going to, to a nude beach occasionally. Would they identify as a nudist, or would they just say, "Well, I, you know, I occasionally go to a nude beach"? Well, what do you think of that, Frank? That's a good question. I, I don't think so. I mean, I think when you identify as either a burlesque performer or a Moulin Rouge performer, just like if you were to identify an exotic tipper, uh, exotic uh, dancer, there's an understanding that part of the show involves nudity, whereas I picture a nudist not necessarily doing it for the sake of showmanship. I picture a nudist walking around naked because they enjoy being naked. So they're more of a purist. Well, I'm not saying a purist. I think the difference is performing for someone else versus behaving a certain way for yourself. I've known, uh, and thanks for the call, Joe, I've known many strippers, for instance, over the years, and... Many of them, not all of them, but many of them are very demure in in real life when they're not performing. They're dressed down. They, they wear baggy sweatshirts, uh, oftentimes uh, go through their regular day without makeup. They don't make a big show of uh, dressing sexy when they're not performing. And I think a nudist... They're not interested in being naked to perform. They're interested in being naked because... They like being naked, but I'm not going to get into the psychology of, of nudism. 800-848-9222. Carl is in New Jersey. Hello, Carl. Yeah, hey, how you doing? Okay, I have some information about your passwords. I think there's three areas here. There's the lawyers that want to put in, you know, the uh, security part. There's the lawyers. That's a separate thing. Then you have these computer scientists. They're making their electronic machines. But the area that you're referring to with that lady is human factors engineering, otherwise known as ergonomics. This is all a new field. So one example, for instance, sir, is Three Mile Island. When Three Mile Island uh, happened, they had whistles and everything. You have the electrical engineer that makes the perfect machine that's not compatible with the human being. So you have to study psychology, human factors. I studied this at Virginia Tech 40 years ago. I did a graduate graduate work at Virginia Tech. It's called Human Factors. And that was the best school in the country at that time, better than Caltech or MIT, Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia. It's not the same town and university as it was because you have that, we had great professors. We had tops, guys with a uh, one guy, Professor Weir Willie, who has a who had a Ph.D. from uh, Cornell in electrical engineering, another guy who was a specialist in, in voice simulation with, compu- with uh, computers, computer compatibility with the human, another guy, Snyder. And these guys, see, there's also, even at that time, Virginia Tech had an airport, and these guys would spend one or two days at the most on campus. They would travel all over. Maybe Weir Willie would be out in an aircraft carrier in the Pacific, and he would help with the Navy. So they made a ton, a lot of money, and it was a great school. 
at that time. They had the best program within the Department of Industrial Engineering. So I believe it's that area of understanding the human person. Now, we're human beings. We're not machines. This is not Star Trek. So we have limitations that are built in. So just because there's this new technology of, of computers, and also it, it gets to the, what the human person is like. So there's built-in limitations. And the human person perceives there's also the the whole area of uh, uh, perception you know right, right. and that's all very interesting Carl but where does this all fit in with respect to a better password policy in terms well, of cybersecurity you have to understand you have to understand just like you mentioned in that that lady that's supposed to be the expert she has some understanding of psychology so you have to for instance like you look and see what what uh, dial on your oven uh, or what knob operates what burner so it's the understanding but this is all of the infancy so it's so it's, it's really it's really it's not a you know i mean this is a uh, an infant science you know it's just beginning we've never had and just because we have machines and computers and also i've worked with guys in north carolina a lot of these guys that are very intelligent they don't need to have degrees and they're like contractors for instance in places like pinehurst where you can easily get lost and never find because it's such a mess down there and they want to throw away the cell phone they're fed up there's also the the idea that these kids today, and I didn't know this until I was down in Pinehurst five, six years ago, North Carolina, that you can get blue light. You know, you get the blue light from these devices. We didn't have it from TVs back in the 60s. I'm, I'm about 20 years old. I'm almost 70 years old. So, But there's that possibility, you know, of damage to your eye. Then there's also people talking about with 5G, you know, with, your, with these powerful cell phones of getting electromagnetic radiation that does affect the, the human person. The fact is, unlike in the 60s, so, up until- uh, Carl, I'm still not clear in terms of what you're trying to say about what would be well, a better password policy. Well, I don't I mean, I don't know if there's a perfect thing. I mean, I agree with you. That uh, Mr. Uh, what is your first name? You said I know your last name is Italian Moro, but what is your first name? Uh, it's not important. It's not important. But go ahead, well, fin- I'm, finish your I'm comment. Not a, I'm not. A, I'm not a, a detective. I was just want to get a conversation going. But the point, I think, uh, well, it's real. It's it's an unknown. I don't know what's there's, there's no perfect. But the thing is, they're trying. You have lawyers, I'm sure, that and they're in the in the in the mix. They're in the mill, and that's another. Uh, weird. Uh, <laughs> no, the lawyers are not the same, but they're all trying to do that. But it's not, I think it's it's the point that it's very complicated. The more you make these restrictions, I think you brought up a good point, but you have to also understand the the psychology of it. That's what you were saying. That's right. Carl, Carl, that's, what talking, that's my point. And then the no, other thing well, is, I, I have to go. Say, I have to get to, uh, I have to get to uh, Louis Shapiro. Uh, thank you very much. I, I appreciate it, Carl. So, I posted uh, the wonderful article in the New York Times uh, that was done for the Sunday Times on uh, this past weekend on my friend Malachi McCourt, who's been a guest on this show many times. And I I had intended to call him yesterday, but uh, the day escaped me. I'm hoping that we'll get him on uh, next week. And it turns out the writer of this piece, Lori Gwen Shapiro, is a fascinating person in her own right. She's an award-winning documentary filmmaker. She's a journalist. She's an author. And I found myself, once I looked her up, and and when I shared a link to the article, a lot of people emailed me about some of the great work that she's done. I found myself just going down a rabbit hole 
unable to stop reading not only her work, but to stop reading about her. So she's a fascinating person. We're going to talk about the profile that she did on Malachi McCourt and um, some of the other work that she has done in just a moment. Lori Gwen Shapiro joins us on the other side of Midnight with unnamed Mr. Morrow. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's quarter to three There's no one in the place Except you and me So set em up, Joe I got a little story I think you should know We're drinking, my friend To the end Of a brief episode Make it one for my babe And one more for the road Is there any more apropos song to begin a segment that deals at least in part with someone whose fame stems from his career as a bartender, at least part of his fame. Uh, This song, by the way, uh, of course, a classic Frank Sinatra hit, uh, One for My Baby and uh, One for the Road, was a birthday bumper music selection of my father, Carmine Morano, and uh, my son is Carmine William Morano. My father is Carmine Anthony Morano. So happy birthday to my dad. And uh, he's not listening now. He sleeps at this time. But uh, maybe I'll I'll say a word or two about him a bit later. I will say this. uh, Of all the songs that he could have selected, he picked this one. And I would mention his age. He doesn't care about mentioning his age. But he hasn't aged in the last 30 years. So it's a little... It's a little embarrassing to me, anyway, that I'm aging so rapidly. I have all this gray hair, and he still doesn't have any. Hey, speaking of aging, uh, not necessarily rapidly, but certainly gracefully, that certainly can be said of uh, Malachi McCourt. And there was an absolutely brilliant profile of uh, Malachi McCourt in the New York Times this past weekend. The person that wrote it is Lori Gwen Shapiro. She is an award-winning documentary filmmaker, a journalist, an author. Her latest book is The Stowaway, A Young Man's Extraordinary Adventure to Antarctica. Lori, it's great to see you. Thanks for getting up early for us. Oh, sure. I'm very excited to do this. Uh, and I am I'm uh, had a special cup of coffee to so I'm perky. Wonderful. That's great. <laughs> now, are you going to have are you going to go try and go back to sleep after this or are you going to stay up? We'll see. Okay. See, that, that's what's tricky with having the cup of coffee, having been in that position <laughs> recently. All right. I want to talk to you about this Maliki profile, but I want to ask you about a little of the uh, some of the other work that you did. Sure. As I uh, I became an instant fan of yours over the course of the last four days. And um, there was a wonderful piece that I discovered. It's over a year old about uh, a mystery involving Amelia Earhart and a helmet 
that has been missing for uh, a number of years. An Amelia Earhart mystery that was solved. You told this story. First of all, I hadn't heard this story before, but you told it so well in your article for the New York Times. Give us the Reader's Digest version of the mystery of Amelia Earhart's lost aviator helmet. Oh, sure. And that actually has a wonderful uh, ending on top of an ending. So uh, just by way of background, I'm actually... Uh, writing a book about Amelia Earhart that's coming out next year. So it's the first big book on Amelia in about 20 years. So I was already a bit of an expert. I'm in the final edits. And um, uh, a story came across my radar, you know, because I'm on the Amelia beat, so to speak, about a helmet that had been put up for auction by heritage auctions out in Dallas. And many of you have heard of Sotheby's and Christie's, but the largest auction house in America is actually heritage, and they do a lot of collectibles. They do um, many of their biggest um, collectibles are sports items, jerseys that have been worn by you know, favorite players, that kind of thing. And a gentleman had gone to the, to, uh, the, the original um, uh, Christie's like places and sort of been laughed out when he said that his his mother had told me uh, that I got this helmet uh, when Amelia Earhart uh, touched down in Cleveland and you know people just just laughed him off and then he actually went to an antiques roadshow expert who also laughed him I mean who has Amelia Earhart's helmet. And what has happened is that there's a new technology where people, they use it for the sports jerseys where they can photo match. So, you know, if you have a picture of um, someone, you know, uh, taking a hoop and then you have a jersey and you can match it, like you know, a rip or a stain, that actually is a legitimate uh, source of um, auction, uh, you know, qualification. And this gentleman decided, you know what, to heck with uh, Christie's and Sotheby's, I'm going to Heritage. And they had the top photo matcher in the world figure out that this actually was a helmet. What happened was she was in an air derby. So this is not a helmet from Amelia Earhart when she disappeared in uh, 1937, but this was what she, when I say helmet, by the way, I'm talking about a soft leather mm-hmm. thing that goes over your head, not like a, a football helmet. Sure. That's what they call it. Yeah, it looks like kind of a, a pre-1920 football helmet. Right, but, right. <laughs> but this is what the, the aviators, these are open planes. And so when she, she, Amelia Earhart first got on the American radar in 1928 when she was going across the Atlantic as a passenger, the person who had gone across solo in 1927 was Charles Lindbergh. And so she was, before she went across the Atlantic by herself in 1932, she went across as the, the first woman. And the first woman caused a sensation. Um, that is the helmet she was wearing a year later on what many people call the, uh, the Women's Air Derby. And it was going from Santa Monica to Cleveland. And these air races were the biggest things in the United States for the men and then now for the women. And there was a frenzy. It was like having the Beatles land when they finally, the women started to land in Cleveland. And people started to race the field. And she dropped her helmet. And she also dropped um, goggles that are in the Smithsonian. So there is another item. 
And it turns out that this gentleman's um, mother's, uh, uh, there was a boy who knew that she loved Amelia Earhart. You know, she'd already become famous for a year. And he rushed and got the item and gave it to her. And she put it in a box. Wow. <laughs> and this whole thing, and I'm, a, you know, I'm, I, you know I, I, I teach journalism as well as write journalism. I'm very big on fact-checking. The whole thing uh checked out. And so Heritage didn't really know. There's no items like this that have been put up before. So they put it up for about maybe 80000 and they thought, oh, that will be a pretty fun item. Well, after I wrote my article, a number of people, it went, it went absolutely viral, it got picked up in the London Times and all over the world. And when the auction day came, it just started going up and up and up and up. And suddenly it went over $800,000. And this man in Minnesota who had been sort of mocked by his friends and his family suddenly had the craziest payday. And it was, a lot of it was because of the power of a newspaper like the New York Times giving coverage. And, and that's what's happened with Malachi, too. I mean, every, a lot of New Yorkers know Malachi. We love him. We see him you know, in, connected to St. Patrick's in, uh, Day week in particular, like this week. But a lot of people have forgotten that he's still here. And the McCourts, as you probably know since you've had Malachi on your show, have had pretty worldwide fame, especially around 1997 and 98 when Frank McCourt, his brother, wrote Angela's Ashes sure. and then won the Pulitzer Prize. And a, a lot of people forgot that Malachi is still here. But what happened with him is a lot – you know, he's a very – uh, you know, he loves posting on social media, particularly on Facebook. And he posted that he was dying in back in um, the summer. And I was just, I mean, the beginning of my piece, it was like a, a punch to the gut. And um, for not just for me, but for any of his friends, I know that you mentioned that you, you've been friendly with him. And we're just like, oh, no, this era of New York of, like, the Jimmy Breslin, the Pete Hamill, that's coming to an end. So I I do want to get back to Malky in a a second, but just just to close the the chapter on Amelia Earhart. Sure. um, uh, Do you, since you've studied her, and I hope to have you back on when your book comes out, do you you have a theory on her disappearance as to what happened? There have been so many different things that we've heard over the years. What's your take on your research? Well, I have to be careful because I want everyone to to buy my book when it comes out. <laughs> but I will say that I think that um, I I think that if you look at what what the way that the story was covered uh, in the 1930s um, when she disappeared, this is before World War II. Um, it, there wasn't as much of a mystery there, and when we entered World War II, um, it became more of a mystery because her disappearance became more useful. And I think the story that I'm trying to write is not so much about how she died, which, I mean, I mean, I think I, I have my own thoughts, uh, which a lot of people, you know, have their own thoughts. I mean, most people... That, that follow the story believe that she ran out of gas. I'm mm-hmm. not saying anything astounding there. But I think what's fascinating is when you ask people about Amelia Earhart, they don't really know who she was as a person. They they have an iconic version of her. They don't know, like, you know, I'm, I'm actually writing my story is really about her marriage. A lot I of see. people have no idea who she was 
uh, that she was even married uh, and really what she did. But I do have a lot of that that day that she disappeared and then what happened afterward. But I think what's so fascinating to me is just how much attention she's still getting. Absolutely. I mean, she disappeared in 1937, and I'm a, I'm a native New Yorker, as you could probably tell from my voice. And, I, I mean, no matter, sometimes I take a taxi, sometimes I take a subway or an Uber, everyone knows Amelia Earhart. That's for sure. Uh, that's for sure. All right. Uh, now, you mentioned Malachi McCourt's announcement that he was dying. Uh, he and I spoke back in September, and I asked him what his favorite thing about dying was, and he answered as only Malachi can. If you had to pick... What is the best thing about dying? Well, the the fact is that you know you are. And the fact is that, for example, now here, you said dying, which most Americans avoid saying. Um, It's always passed away, left us, no longer with us gone to heaven with the Lord, bought the farm, and every uh, euphemism you can imagine, except he's dead or he's dying, you know. So don't avoid it. We can't. We're all mortal beings, and off we go. And and that is, uh, I have a death date, which at the moment I'm not going to keep because it's supposed to be uh, November 9th. So... But if I do die on that day, can I be on the show on the 10th, please? <laughs> um, <laughs> Laurie, um, so you mentioned seeing the announcement from Malachi on social media that he was dying. What spurred you to write this profile about him? Well, um, I had the great fortune of having um, Frank McCourt, Malachi McCourt's brother, as my high school English teacher at Stuyvesant High School. And I was, you know, I knew uh, Frank when I was 15 years old. And I don't know if anyone knows the show that the two brothers did before Frank became famous with Angela's Ashes was called The Couple of Blaggards. And they, it was, I was too young to, to see it at the village gate. You know, even the drinking age was 18, but I was still too young. Um, And they brought it to our high school. And I met Malachi. And back then, I didn't really know much about Malachi, except that he was on Ryan's Hope, which was the soap opera that came after General Hospital, which was the biggest thing in the country in the 80s. And um, I got to meet him, and he was it's so funny. Everybody, you know, Malachi was the celebrity. Frank was the brother, the teacher. Um, but I, I met them then, and then um, I stayed in touch with Frank. I wanted to be a writer. Um, you know, Stuyvesant was really more uh, teaching students how to be scientists and mathematicians, and I, I wanted to be a writer, and that, so he became my mentor. I stayed in touch with him, and then in the, in the 1997, after he was retired, his book was number one in 40 countries. It sold millions of copies. He was a retired teacher. He had taught on Staten Island. He had taught in um, at Stuyvesant, and suddenly he won the Pulitzer Prize, and the presidents are coming out, and he's hanging out with Julia Roberts, and it was like crazy. I mean, I've never seen, you know, sometimes someone fam- becomes famous in your lifetime, but Frank McCourt, you know, he's the one. <laughs> and I, um, there was sort of this almost cottage industry that started to come up. I mean, anything to do with the McCourt would, would do well. Sure. But meanwhile, his... 
Malachi's son, Connor, who I, who I really didn't know, he was a year ahead of me in high school, but I didn't know him, had been doing um, uh, uh, these small, intimate documentaries. And his grandmother was Angela from Angela's Ashes. And he'd been doing this, and it just happened to correspond with when Frank's book took off. And he had made um, the first movie for $5,000. And I volunteered, you know, as through Frank had told me about it, and I volunteered to join up. And I got to know all of the McCourt clan. Um, there was not just Frank and Malachi, but there was Mike, who was a bartender out in San Francisco, and Alfie, who uh, worked at Penn South and was like the head of maintenance there. And they were all wonderful. And the, the and Connor's film was so intimate and so connected with such access that HBO bought it. This $5,000 film, it was aired. It was a big hit. We got asked to do another film called the McCourts. That was called the McCourts of Limerick. And um, then we did another film called the McCourts of New York. And I even got to travel to Ireland with the McCourt family, which was amazing. And I got to go to India with them. Again, I was volunteering. I wasn't paying my own ticket, but I, I wasn't taking money from this. And I became very close. And my mother just became close to them, too. I mean, I was pretty young. And when my mother was dying, um, I, she just preferred to have, you know, I'm, I'm secular Jewish, but she wanted to have an Irish wake. Hmm. And Malachi took over the funeral service. So we have this connection. And I haven't really been involved with him professionally since the mid-'90s, but I wanted to give back. I mean, sometimes the idea hit me. I was reading a, a biography of P.T. Barnum, of all people, about how towards the end of his life, somebody from um, Hartford, where he was you know, living from the papers there, said, would you like to read your obituary before you die? And he said he would love it. <laughs> and I thought, well, why, why, why don't I give Malachi a chance to have, instead of having to, you know, have yeah. a obituary, why not have him celebrate his life? I mean, and at this time, this was this was in November, and I started to, I had contacted him, and I thought, well, maybe I'll just get him to talk. And I was racing it. I was trying to race it for the paper. Um, and then... The second shock came, and this is covered a little bit in my article, that he posted that on November 9th, um, he was kicked out of hospice. I mean, you'll get officially kicked out of hospice, but he no longer was eligible because he was getting better. I mean, he's not, he still, he still has everything wrong with him. I mean, he has uh, different forms of cancer and a, a, a condition called IBM. He said to me, which this got cut, I, I I thought originally that was a poop, and <laughs> I realized it was like a, a, diff a different condition altogether. And I and he, but but he he actually started to improve enough that we realized he was definitely going to be alive for this St. Patrick's Day. And so the Times article shifted to Malachi McCart wants one last St. Patrick's Day, and you know he's he's not in fantastic shape, but he's he's out there, the old Malachi that many New Yorkers know and appreciate, he's the guy that says yes to things. He's the guy that goes on the radio shows, he goes to the parades, he supports other people in the Irish-American community in particular. I was very, I reached out to people like Liam Neeson, who immediately said he wanted to participate in my article. I mean, imagine that. I mean, we just had um, Jim Sheridan, who's been nominated for Oscars for My Left Foot. 
with Daniel Day Lewis. He absolutely, they everyone wanted to to be to give back as well, and that was what was so wonderful. And I've been around um, the mania that a McCourt documentary can cause, and I I I was not so surprised when my article became pretty viral this weekend because I just know how many how many people um, love him and appreciate him. I mean he's he's been as you played a, a song about bartending, but he came here in you know as in in the 1950s when he was 20 he was a Brooklyn boy that's why he had American citizenship they went back to Ireland when his sister died of crib death when he was three but he always had that that um, American citizenship and so Frank came back first um, from Limerick back to to New York and then he sent over money for Malachi to come and Malachi arrived and um, almost immediately became a bartender at a time when, you know, people really drank. Oh, sure. <laughs> and, Especially and, him. And, and so he, he, one of the stories I love to talk about was how he actually, how do you go from just being an Irish bartender to getting sort of um, national uh, fame? And the, what happened was um, many, may, maybe some of the people listening to the show remember that The Tonight Show had several hosts, not just, um, you know, who we have. Right. It was Jack Parr. Back then. But at that time, it was the second host. It was Jack Parr. And Malky had been out in Fire Island uh, for a summer share that he got for free at a bar. And um, there were several uh, uh young writers for The Tonight Show out there, and he was telling his stories that we know and love him for now, and he had a crazy story about um, how he couldn't pay his bills, and he would stamp deceased (laughs) on all the bills. And one of the the writers said, you know, I think that Jack Parr would love that story. And, And he was looking for unknowns. He was looking for fresh voices. And sure enough, he goes on the show, and Malachi told me, and Malachi's been sober since 1985, but he told me he was drunk as a skunk when he went on the show. And yet, he was, was still charming. I mean, imagine this, going on, on the air drunk. And he told that story, and it sparked this whole national trend of people <laughs> saying deceased that's, on their bills. That's incredible. Absolutely <laughs> incredible. Lori, uh, you got to come back, because I'd love to talk with you more about your book, sure. uh, The Stowaway. Uh, so maybe we can uh, continue this conversation in a week or two. And uh, I, it's really just such a treat to talk with you. I've become oh, a big wonderful. fan of your work in a short amount of time. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I know I'd go from rags to riches If you would only say you care And though my pocket may be empty I'd be a millionaire My 
shine and Chris from the Catskills, Chris from the Catskills sends me 30 text messages a day. And uh, at least, at least I, I, I stop looking. I mean, they're too long. I, I don't look at these long text messages. And they include articles and links. And uh, I, I very rarely click on any of them. But I don't know what made me do this, but I clicked on a link yesterday on one of the one of the uh, one of the articles that he sent me, and I, he informed me that uh, a lawyer that I that used to represent me, Jim Long from the Capital Region, and he and I had just emailed about two weeks ago that he had passed away. So uh, I'm very sorry to see this. He was uh, an Albany attorney for 44 years who specialized in criminal defense, election law, and labor law. And uh, he passed away at the age of 71. Good lawyer. Good lawyer. Always did right by me. And he represented me in one very pivotal case for a reasonable price. And I won that case. And uh, that uh, helped change the course of minor party history in New York. And and even when he didn't represent me, He was always very generous with advice, which not a lot of lawyers are. So thank you to Chris from the Catskills for making me aware of that. And condolences to Jim Long and his family. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. I'm going to give you some facts, but first let me just ask a question, and then I'll give you the context behind the question. If you run for office as a Republican or a Democrat, and there's a primary, and you lose that primary, should you be legally entitled to run for office as a third-party or independent candidate? Call me with your answer and your response as to why. 800-848-9222. We have a ton of stuff to get into this hour. We're going to try and get into it, as mu- as mu- pack in as much as we can for the next 16 minutes, including the mail. 800-848-9222. For instance, if you run for U.S. Senate, let's say, in a state like Alaska, and you're a fairly moderate Republican, someone like Lisa Murkowski, and you lose your Republican primary, should you be able to run in the general election as an independent? Well, in the case of Lisa Murkowski, she didn't. She ran as a write-in candidate. She didn't have access to the ballot. She ran as a write-in. She won as a write-in. In New York City, where I live, we had a... He was a Republican at the time, then he switched parties. But we had a Republican mayor, liberal Republican, John Lindsay, who ran for ran for office, got elected as a Republican, ran for re-election, lost a Republican primary. 
believe it or not. Imagine that. An incumbent mayor of New York City losing his own party primary. So what did he do? Did he go home? No. He ran as the nominee of the Liberal Party and got elected as a third-party candidate. There are a bunch of states that prohibit that that have something called sore loser laws that prohibit you if you've run in the primaries before from um, running in the general election as an independent or third party candidate. So there was a uh, a very interesting piece and very thought provoking piece, very well researched piece from the folks at the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. It's written by Jason Torshinsky, Steve Roberts, not not the journalist Steve Roberts, at Dennis Polio and Andrew Pardue. Very well researched. It's fundamentally flawed. I'm going to tell you what it says, but it's fundamentally flawed. It has to do with um, this idea that Donald Trump, if he doesn't win the Republican primary might run as a third-party or independent candidate. And certainly he'd have ample opportunity to do so. This is the title of this piece by the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. If you ain't first, you're last. I love that people at uh, Harvard include the word ain't. I realize it's a colloquialism and they're quoting it. I love that they include the word ain't in the title of a major serious academic piece. If you ain't first, you're last. How state sore loser laws make it impossible for Trump to run a successful third party campaign if he loses the Republican primary. And it's by the authors that I just mentioned. And essentially, it goes into the fact that a lot of states have prohibitions on running as an independent if you lose the primary. States like uh, Alabama, Arkansas, California, Connecticut, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Illinois. And essentially what they say is there are about 20 states. I'm not going to count them all now, but it's about 20 states, many of which were, were won by Donald Trump in either 2016 or 2020 or both. And they say that uh, Trump has no chance of making the ballot if uh, he runs as a third-party candidate because of these sore loser laws. So I'd like to have the conversation first. I'll tell you why these guys are wrong in a second. But I'd like to have the conversation first about whether you think these sore loser laws are A, constitutional, and B, are they sound public policy? It's not going to surprise you that uh, I think that these sore loser laws are for the birds. I think this is outrageous. I think it's depriving the people of choice. If a candidate wants to run as a third party or independent candidate, and he, he should have every right to. I remember when John Katzenmatidis ran for mayor of New York City. He lost the Republican primary, and he had two third party lines. The Liberal Party line and a party line that he created called Jobs, Jobs, Jobs. And I said to him privately afterwards, I said, John, you know, I really didn't appreciate. I, I never had the opportunity to vote for you. I'm not a registered Republican. And I would have liked the opportunity to vote for you in the general election. And I didn't appreciate the fact that you dropped out and um, basically deprived those of us that aren't Republicans of the opportunity to vote for you. And ultimately, he said he was sort of pressured by Governor Pataki and others into dropping out, but that, um, you know, if he, that he, he said I was not wrong, basically. And that's my view 
of these sore loser laws. I think they're awful. I think they're absolutely awful. Voters should have the right to run, and more importantly, uh, excuse me, candidates should have the right to run, and more importantly, voters should have the right to select those candidates. Now, let me get into why this Harvard um, academic piece is is incorrect. Um, many presidential candidates have done this, meaning they've run in the primaries and then they've tried to run at, in the general election. And so these sore loser laws exist in 45 states. So what candidates have done running for president before is they've challenged these sore loser laws in court. And state after state, when they've been challenged, has said no. Running in the presidential primaries is an exception to this. You can still run as a third party or independent candidate if, if you've run in the presidential candidates. The only two states where the sore loser laws still apply to presidential candidates are South Dakota and Texas, in spite of what these writers of this piece say. They contend that that's wrong. But when it comes to ballot access, the greatest authority in the country is Richard Winger, the editor and publisher of Ballot Access News. He's the encyclopedia by which all others are measured when it comes to ballot access questions. So when it comes to presidential candidates, only two states. But I'm not just talking about presidential candidates. I'm talking about Candidates for all offices. For instance, Eric Adams, he has upset a lot of people on the uh, progressive left with his comments about uh, the separation of church and state. He has upset a lot of people with his comments about crime and the bail laws. And there are already progressives plotting to run a primary against him in 2025. It's not inconceivable that Adams could lose a Democratic primary and then choose to run in the general election, as John Lindsay did. So I think he should be able to. And I think if Trump loses the Republican primary, he should be able to. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Now, I realize, and I don't, I don't even like to use the word Trump, because Trump is like throwing a red blanket in front of a bull or a red cape in front of a bull. They just charge at it. Um, And people lose all ability to think rationally because they either love him or hate him so much. And so, obviously, if you don't like the Republicans or if you don't like Trump, you want Trump to have the ability to run as a third-party candidate because, in all likelihood, states that uh, don't have ranked-choice voting, which is, that's right, in the presidential election, all of them, um, he would likely split the vote and allow Joe Biden to win with a plurality. So if you if you don't like Trump, you should hate these sore loser laws. But I don't want you to view this through a prism of Trump. I want you to view this objectively. Should you be able to run as a third-party candidate if you lose a primary? That is the question. A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited... My answer is yes. You should absolutely be able to run as a candidate for any office as a third-party candidate if you lose a primary. Voters deserve a choice. Candidates deserve an option to run. Now, speaking of third parties, a lot of you have probably seen this. We had the guys from No Labels on this show, and uh, they're trying to—they've spent a lot of money— getting on the ballot for a theoretical third-party candidate uh, or candidates, a Democrat and a Republican teamed up. Remember, Joe Lieberman was on the show talking about it. Ryan Clancy was on the show talking about it. 
And there's what they've said is if the Democrats nominate someone that's too extreme and the Republicans nominate someone that's too extreme, they're going to nominate a centrist alternative to the two major candidates. Now, what they have not done, which I wish they would do, is they haven't really laid down the criteria for what extremism is. Who or what is too extreme? They haven't really said what the criteria is. So that leads does raise some eyebrows with me. But worries about a potential 2024 spoiler ticket have been percolating among Democrats for months ever since news of no label $70 million fundraising goal trickled out last year. But in recent weeks, that anxiety has heightened uh, as the group, even amidst internal turmoil, has put hundreds of petition circulators on the ground nationwide in a bid to win ballot access in key swing states in some cases that were decided by a few percentage points or less. So there's a... um, uh, One Democratic strategist told Politico, Politico, the newspaper, definitely people are thinking about how to prevent that nightmare scenario. No one knows how real it is yet, though. I would think it is pretty real because you have they've secured ballot access already in several states and they're continuing. Third way, which is a left leaning group, but it's a, it's a, it's a center left group. It's a Democratic leaning group. But it's kind of centrist Democrat. They issued a memo aimed at uh, surfacing those worries and making a data-driven case for the danger a third-party ticket poses to Democrats. This follows a CNN op-ed last week from Paul Begala, who cited a previous third-way analysis in claiming the vast majority of votes that a no-labels presidential candidate would receive would likely come out of President Joe Biden's pool of potential voters, not former President Trump's. So this new memo, notes that third-party voters from 2016 backed Biden by 30 points in 2020, which was a crucial block that helped him uh, in ousting Donald Trump. And voters who said they don't like either party, what Third Way calls double haters, backed Biden by 15 points after Hillary Clinton had lost that same group by 17 points. So Third Way also argues that no labels is targeting Democratic voters by their own admission, citing an electoral map the group has circulated showing a unity ticket's path to victory, winning two-thirds of their electoral votes in states that Biden won in 2020, including Democratic strongholds like Illinois, Washington, and Biden. And what they're claiming is that a no-labels ticket would not have to be especially successful to spoil a Democratic win. Biden won six out of the seven most competitive states by three points or less. As such, they're saying even a paltry third-party performance would put 79 Biden electoral votes at risk. Now, I'm not disputing their analysis. I do think they have a little bit of an agenda here, but whatever. It's politics. Everybody's got an agenda. I will say, though, that whether it's Paul Begala whether it's third way, whether it's any Democratic operative in the country that raises the prospect of a a no-labels candidate hurting Biden, I don't even want to hear from them unless they have publicly supported ranked choice voting. If you've publicly supported ranked choice voting, then I will, okay, listen to your argument about this, because ranked choice voting does away with this whole spoiler effect. So, Uh, On the question of sore loser laws, 
Where do you stand? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Here is the aforementioned Chris from the Catskills. Hello, Chris. Hey, good morning, Frank. I got answers for all these questions. Uh, Amelia Earhart, her plane crashed on a remote island in the Pacific, and she was eaten to death by large land crabs nearly the size of dogs. I texted you a link to a Newsweek article. I saw a mystery channel, a piece Chris, on it. Like, why do you text so often rather than email once in a while? If you don't include texts and articles. Because I don't have it linked to my smartphone that way. But if you have a smartphone, isn't it just as easy to email as it is to, to, to send an SMS no. text? It's not. It's quicker to text. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I mean, if you that's not your primary cell phone. There's no way that's your primary cell phone. So listen, the the uh, I got the answers to your questions and I got some things to enlighten you and your listeners on. Uh, I re- well, I'll tell you about the law changes. So in New York state, we have laws that restrict third party candidates. Uh, a state senator that I'm a big fan of, James Scoopis, just passed one within the last year making it illegal to use the word independent, independence or indie in a party line. Yeah, no, I I am aware preservation. Right. I am aware of that, uh, Chris. And I and I did talk about that at the time. Uh, But um, talk to me about the sore loser laws specifically. Do you believe now? New York doesn't have this, but a lot of other states do up to 45. What do you what do you think of the idea of these sore loser laws? Well, in New York state right now. The Work and Families Party has influence on progressive candidates that they helped to get into office. So there's been some laws that are getting passed. So there's a new law where if you notarize political signatures outside of your political party as somebody that's gathering signatures or and or the candidate that's gathering signatures, you have to keep a ledger book now as a notary. And this is going to backfire on them because I've spoken to Republican Party bosses. Chris, that say Chris I mean, that, that is also interesting. All the petitions. But again, you're refusing to answer my question about sore loser laws. Why, why okay. are you evading my question? It's not a difficult no, question. Not. It's I an ran, opinion. I, so I, I ran. I don't agree with them. I ran. I lost the Democratic okay, primary by 11 votes. It's like pulling teeth to a Chris candidate that me his is, whose campaign was illegally funded by progressives that ganged up on against me for an open seat. But I ended up winning the Work and Families line and the Independence Party line. I, I, I took the Work and Families line away from him, seven to one. All and right, I so, took the Independence Party vote away by 10 votes Chris, against the Republican. Again, and I, I stayed on the ballot. Chris, I would hate to deprive you of an opportunity to talk about your own electoral prowess. That being said, um, what do you, I agree with you on the sore loser laws. As, as difficult as it was for us to get there, we got there. I agree with you. But what do you say to those that disagree, that say, look, these candidates, whether it's Chris and the Catskills or Donald Trump or John Lindsay or Eric Adams, they had their bite at the apple in the, in the Republican or Democratic primary. They lost. So tough noogies. Who are these losers to try and spoil it for uh, the person that won their party's primary? There's a certain percentage of voters that don't like two major party rule in the election process and they will always vote for the candidate with the smaller line you know it's it's contingent upon the political district and office you're talking about in which political year all right that's one thing to be said but donald trump strategically this is good for him because listen if he were to lose to in uh, DeSantis in the primary, which I don't think he's going to, DeSantis isn't capturing the progressive spirit. Donald Trump is the poster child of the 
of the, excuse me, the populist movement. Donald Trump is the poster child of the populist movement that's on the right of center side. And DeSantis isn't going to take that away from him in 15 months. But if Donald Trump were to lose the primary, then Biden wins again with him having a third party candidacy. And I don't think his voters would hold him to hold it against him. He could try no, and run again in another I. three and a half years. Neither do I. And thank you, Chris. That's why. I mean, look, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, he ran uh, for president after losing the Republican primary in 1912. He ran as a third party candidate. He lost. He finished second. But in 1916, he was one of the leading candidates for uh, the Republican presidential nomination again. He didn't end up getting it. It went to Charles Evan Hughes. They did, not so much the voters, but the party bosses did hold that 1912 candidacy against Roosevelt because they viewed him as helping to elect Woodrow Wilson. Now, in 1920, had Theodore Roosevelt, had li- if he had lived, he would have been the Republican nominee. And all indications are he probably would have won the presidency in 1920. Instead, it turned out to be uh, Warren G. Harding. There's a great book about it uh, by David Pietruzza, who we've spoken to on this show, one of my favorite living historians. It's called uh, 1920, the year of six presidents. It's the only year in American history where six either past or future, past, current or future presidents all tried to run for president or vice president. It's really an interesting year in electoral politics. 800-848-9222. What do you think of the idea of sore loser laws? Uh, Five open lines if you want to comment. 800-848-9222. Dean is in Manhattan Island. Hello, Dean. Hello, Frank. How are you? Hello, Dean. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm calling to tell you that I enjoyed the the talk on Frank, Frank McCord. Right, Malachi. Mal- Malachi yes. McCord. Great. That's which, wonderful. Which one was it? Malachi. Malachi. I, I'm going to be 80 years old this year. And when I was about 17, 18 years old, every Saturday night, I used to love listening to that show, to his show on the radio. Uh, yeah, he was on WMCA back then, right? Yes. Wonderful show. Did you ever, did you ever hear the um the story of how he got fired from WMCA? No, I never. All right, I'm no. going to tell you, Dean. So, um Richard Nixon, maybe he didn't get fired, but I think he did get fired. I he at least was suspended. So, uh <laughs> Richard Nixon was the president at the time and he had just filed fired the special prosecutor for Watergate, Archibald Cox. And Malachi goes on the radio and says something to the effect of, in words or some substance, you know, back in Ireland, in my country, to be fired is to be sacked. So I don't think I'd be out of line by calling Richard Nixon a Cox sacker. And uh, that did not go over well with the Strausses and the folks over at uh, WMCA. Uh, by the way, speaking of radio legends, in addition to today being my father's birthday, today is also the birthday of another brilliant radio legend, the one and only... Hey, listen, Ron of Glendale, I tell you what, sometime I want you to show up 
when I'm making a public appearance. I want you to identify I yourself. I don't step into I want, of Satan, houses of iniquity. I, don't I want you to identify yourself oh, so that I can I punch your stupid nose down your dumb throat. I'll step on you, you old man. You'll step on me, yeah. huh? Get off my phone. <laughs> That's right. The one and only Robert Ciro Giganti, born March 14th, 1929, unfortunately passed away 10 years ago. Uh, today would have been his birthday. Uh, nobody like Bob Grant. And you know what's a shame? I went back and uh, on my Facebook page for, you know, before Bob passed away, obviously, and I, I had the opportunity to get to know Bob a little bit, I... On his birthday, because he shared the same birthday as my dad, I would wish them both a happy birthday with something usually pretty clever. And so in, uh, I think it was 2011, or it might have been 2012, I wished them both a a happy birthday. And, you know, my typical wordy fashion. And um, they they uh, And they both commented on it. But Bob, I guess when he passed away, this is in 2012, when Bob passed away, his Facebook page went away, which I guess you have the option. I don't know how they decide whether if you die, your Facebook page goes away or not. But Bob had decided or Bob's heirs had decided to discontinue his Facebook page. And uh, Bob had a lot of nice comments on there. Um, about uh, about responding to my birthday wish, but no, now those comments are all gone. I wish I had screenshotted them at the time. Had I wished, uh, had I known how ephemeral they all were. Hey, uh, here is Bob talking with uh, one of our favorites, uh, Tom from the Bronx. Listen to this. Tom, you're on WABC. Hello. Hi. Yeah, Tom. Yes. Tom, what do you want to say, Tom? Tom. Tom. Come on, Bob. Don't you ever get tired of calling this program with your dumb manner of speaking? It's a new page in our history. We're the best of pals now. Oh, you and me? Yeah. That'll never be the day, Tom. Hardy, Abbott and Costello. Now it's That'll never be the day, Tom. I don't hang around with guys that have uh, your habits. (laughs) Anyway, listen, listen, Bob. I'd just like to say this. That stop being so gloomy on life. By the way, I love that this, this tape is from... More than 30 years ago. It's from 32 years ago. And he, Tom is the exact same way, way now. There's nothing you could say to him that will get him to slow down. Forget about stop. There's nothing that will get him to slow down from saying whatever it is that he wants to say. So lest anyone think that that is a byproduct of age when it comes to Tom. It's not. He was like that with Bob Grant back in 1991. Anyway, listen, listen, Bob. I'd just like to say this. Just like Stop being say, so gloomy yeah. on life. Be happy. Oh, really? Smile, smile. Uh, smile. Smile, though your heart is breaking. He's a bore. 800-848-9222. Hey, I am shocked. That more people are not calling to weigh in on this sore loser law thing. I would have figured you would have a bunch of people dealing with the issue on its own merits. I figured you'd have a bunch of people saying, no, I don't want that because I don't want Trump to have a chance at running in the general. I think you'd have a bunch of people say, I love Trump, but no, no, I don't want him running because I want the Republicans to win. Color me shocked. I always think I know what this audience is going to do. Go show you. I have no idea what this audience is going to do unless, you know, unless you're all occupied with other 
matters. But, um, you know, I, I think nobody, nothing really defined the early 90s on the Bob Grant show more than the Mario salute, which I think on his birthday, it uh, definitely it definitely behooves us to remember this particular unique version of the Mario salute. Come in outer space. Hey, Mario, ascend the bay. That's what they're saying out there in outer space? Good heavens. The absolute greatest. Hey, uh, we're going to give you an opportunity to try and win $1,000. If you think you have what it takes to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, then um, call right now and be the seventh caller to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. If you're the seventh caller, we'll give you an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. But I will leave you with this gem. Oh, cut it out. Cut it out. Cut it out, you little weasel. Cut it out. Cut it out. Out. Bye. I, I I wouldn't go to Australia because I was afraid I'd go to Australia to get away from German like you. Get off my phone. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno, and uh, we're going to get back to your calls and our regularly scheduled programming in just a minute. And we're going to go through the mail in uh, just a moment. If you want to be heard, you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Meantime, it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Thank Morano. you, Chris Libertini. Let's say hello to Anne, our contestant this morning. Good morning, Anne. Good morning, Frank. Anne, are you call- do you live in Tapan or Tappan? Well, they say... It's pronounced Japan, but actually, when we first moved up here, I thought it was Tappan. So have you? But been, everybody says Japan. Have you been converted to Japan? 
yes. Would you have still moved there had you known the proper pronunciation <laughs> was Tapan, not Tapan? Yes, I would have. Okay. All right, good. All right, uh, Anne, have you heard this segment of the show before? Yes. Okay, great. So you know what to do, right? Right. All right. Uh, we'll get started. And Hang on. Let me get my watch here. Make sure Matt Blaze doesn't shortchange you, which uh, he's been known to do from time to time. Hang on. Okay. How many branches of the federal government are there? Three. What film won Best Picture at the Academy Awards this week? Oh, everything and every, everything. Uh, I don't know the exact title. Okay, well, we'll take that. Uh, who is the patron saint of Ireland? Patrick. What was Mozart's first name? <sighs> Starts with a W. He's got an animal in it. I pass. I'm sorry. I uh, all right. Okay. It was uh, Wolfgang. Wolfgang. Wolf, uh, Wolfgang uh, was his name. All right. Well, you got three right, uh, at least. And I'm going to put you on hold. Um, give Kenneth your information, and we'll, we'll send you something nice, okay? Thank you very much. Thanks, Ann. Appreciate you calling. Bye, Appreciate bye. you listening. Give our best to everybody in uh, Japan. Japan, right? And uh, I've been informed by Ann. She actually told uh, Kenny off air that... Uh, Tapan, as is old Tapan in New Jersey, is still wall-to-wall Frank Barreto country. So that's nice. Um, it was officially certified by the former Rockland County executive, uh, Scott Vanderhoff, and then recently reiterated in certificate form by the current Rockland County executive, Ed Day. All right. Uh, you want to comment on anything we're talking about? You're welcome to. Uh, meantime, we're going to go through your email correspondence in just a moment. But there's a lot of printed mail correspondence here, so uh, we're going to go. Th- we'll go through that first. It is time for letters. Oh, we get letters. We get your letters every day. Mailman, mailman, mail today. Reach right in and pull one out. Those letters. Let us begin with the printed, the uh, snail mail. Since people take the time to send a stamp, I always like to get to those folks first because chances are the correspondents have been waiting here for some time. All right, there's one, two, three pieces of mail from Henry in Manhattan, who's uh, probably our most prodigious letter writer. Let me begin with the heaviest. It looks like a book. Let me open this. Okay. And it is, in fact, a book. Ooh, this looks interesting. The Professor and the Madman. It's a book uh, by Simon Winchester. A tale of murder, insanity, and the making of the Oxford English Dictionary. This looks great. I'm not sure why it's being sent to me, but I appreciate it. There's no note in here. But thank you, Henry in Manhattan, for this book. Appreciate that. I'm keeping that. I'm looking forward to that. All right. This is from Kathleen in the Boogie Down Bronx. Now, these guys will witness I did not read these letters. I am reading them for the first time on the air, which maybe isn't the wisest thing because I don't know what they're going to say. And because if the handwriting is poor, that means I may have some difficulty interpreting it. But I'm opening it now, and I am reading this for the first time. Kathleen from the Bronx. See, I have no idea if it's going to be praise. I have no idea if it's going to be scorn. 
Dear Frank, my name is Kathleen. I have written to you about a year ago. I would like to thank you for responding to my letter in a most friendly and caring manner. All right. It's a nice letter. Please allow me to inform you of a situation that is very disappointing. I am a 68-year-old disabled woman with Crohn's disease and also post-traumatic stress disorder. When I was only five years old, oh, this is very personal. I'm not going to share that part of it, uh, but it was she shares a traumatic event. Therefore, my whole life has been severely affected since I never received the proper help. I currently care for my older brother, Kevin. I feel like she's told me a lot of this before. I am uh, essentially home. Oh, and Frank, I do believe that if you read my nice letters to these talk show hosts, you would definitely agree that they would be worthy of a good response. You certainly sent me. Oh, see, it's a little. She wrote on the front and back. That's the thing. I am essentially homebound. Okay. But my main interest is listening to the radio. However, I have written various letters to the following talk show hosts on a certain station that airs me without ever receiving any response from any of them. I will list below the people that I have written to over one year ago. And she names, um, I don't want to name them. I don't want to embarrass anybody. She names six personalities. The letters, what, you want me to name them? All right, I'll name them. I, I, I mean, uh, Sid Rosenberg, Curtis Lewa, Mayor Rudolph Giuliani, Rita Cosby, Vinnie Madugno, and Lydia. The letters that I wrote to them were extremely heartfelt. I waited patiently to hear from them, but never did. And Frank, I do believe that if you read my nice letters to these talk shows, you would definitely agree that they would be worthy of a good response. You certainly sent me a lovely note showing your concern and caring for your listeners. I must say that you show a good character. That is missing in these other individuals. Well, you're certainly right in the case of Curtis. Believe me, I still wish all of them good luck and success in their radio careers, but don't they care about their listeners at all? Your letter was wonderful, and you also sent me two hats, which I have never even asked you for. Now that I know you never go out of the house, maybe I shouldn't have sent you those hats. We should have sent them to somebody that uh, gets out of the house a little bit more, get a little free advertising. I continue to listen to your nighttime show, and I also still listen to all the other hosts, but I very honestly must tell you that I have truly been quite hurt in sending those letters without a response. Cousin Brucie was the other one who did write back to me. That doesn't surprise me at all. Cousin Brucie, such a nice guy. Thank you again for your loyalty towards your listeners, and I want to wish you the best of health, success, and happiness in the years ahead. God bless you. Sincerely, Kathleen. Well, I, you know, the only thing I could think of in the case of... Uh, a lot of those personalities is maybe they didn't get the letter, and not everybody checks the mail as much as uh, as much as I do. So there's that. All right, uh, this is from I can't make it out, but it's from Newark, New Jersey, or is the proper is the the way the locals say it? Nurk. What is this? All right, this is from Harry Cregan, a federal legal representative. I hope it's not a lawsuit. Oh my goodness, this is way too long. The Racial Justice Reform Movement 2023. Even if criminal justice reform can wait, the time for racial justice reform is now. I don't like the sound of this. I am a federal legal rep in the busiest federal district court in America, Newark, New Jersey, and have worked on 1,500-plus cases in the last four years. This is more than any federal attorney in America has worked on in that time. Uh, in that time frame, from all these defendants, I have seen more than you can imagine every kind of case. The RJR, Racial Justice Reform Team, created the Terrible10.com of racial justice reform. 
Thousands of white, black, and Hispanic citizens have already signed the petition at Terrible10.com. I'm also the author of an Amazon Law Top 10 best-selling self-help book that is used mostly by pretrial detainees and lawyers to educate and assist them in fighting their cases. You know, this actually is interesting. I'm not going to read this whole thing because uh, it is way too long. But I'm asking you to take a moment and personally read the document and close, the Terrible10.com of racial justice reform and take action. You know what? Maybe I'll have this guy on the show uh, because we have a lot of listeners who are incarcerated. So I'm going to write back to this guy, Harry, and uh, invite him on the show uh, because uh, I think there are a lot of people locked up that would like to hear about what he's proposing. All right. This is from no name on the outside of the envelope. But um doesn't say who. Oh, they put our address as the return address, which tells me this is like a, a death threat or something. Oh, my goodness. Well, this is nice. It's a note that says, Blessings Frank, no name, and it's got $25 in here. This is very nice. I wish this person had included their name. So Hi, I can thank them because this is very sweet. Person who sent me this $25, if you send me uh, your name or your address or you email it to me or you text it to me, it is 8168Morano. The, the handwriting looks a little, you know, a little older, so I don't want to prejudge someone based on their handwriting, but I would love to send you at the very least a thank you note. I will I will I'll spend this on gasoline today. Thank you very very much. That is very nice. Thank you. All right. We got a letter here from our friend, uh, an email. Oh, wait a minute. Let me go to the Twitter correspondence first because there's some good ones here. R.E. Mullen sent me a direct message on Twitter at Frank Moreno. Did you really keep Shatner's snot rag? Yes. I would love to tell you that was just for show. I absolutely kept it. Look, I didn't get an autograph. I'm going to spend two nights with the guy. For hours and not get a souvenir. You're absolutely right. I got it. And I am looking forward to how best to frame it and preserve it. And um, when the time comes and the technology catches up with it, I'm looking forward to cloning Shatner using that uh, that sneeze. Because there's saliva from the sneeze and there's also oh mucus God. because he blew his nose. So I'm looking forward to using that DNA to figure out a cloning oh process. Oh, my God. Peter Swarovski writes, uh, based on the caller for last Friday's edition of Ask Frank Anything, terrible choice for tonight's favorite caller. Just recently, a guy asked for your favorite superhero. I can't believe you forgot that. Repetition, almost as bad as dead air on the radio. Peter, I didn't forget it. Talk to Matt Blaze, Alex Barnard, and uh, and uh, the other guy, Kenneth. It's uh, it's who they picked. Don't hold at me. Obi Murray uh, writes via email. Chris from the Catskills. I guess he didn't care that you don't want to be contacted by email. Maybe a lesson for callers. What to do calling in. How to email. When to text. Okay, that is an excellent question. Do you know when to text? And I've gone through this before, but I'll say it again now since Obi brings this up. Text me at 8168Morano when there are no links for me to click on. No articles for me to read. Text me when your message is less than 200 characters. If it's less than 200 characters, text me at 8168Morano. If it includes links and articles or pictures, then that's something that I'm going to want to read from my computer screen. Email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. 
Um, Paul writes on the subject of Ariana Savalas. Hi, Frank. Thanks for the entertaining interview with Ariana tonight. Her dark music seems somewhat related to a male artist, Tom Waits. Different styles, but kind of depressing messages. He might be an interesting person for you to interview. Incidentally, Telly Savalas played a macabre role in the Twilight Zone episode, The Living Doll. It had this creepy doll named Talking Tina. You are a, a good quality interviewer. It must be tough to find celebrities at your show's hours. Anyway, thanks again. Well, that's the nice thing about the West Coast, as I said to both Dee Dee and uh, to Ariana. Um... Obi Murray sends another email. OMG, Carl is a waste of time. Wow, what did that do for us? There you go. Um, Frank writes, if you could see your life from beginning to end right now, would you change anything? You know, I used to say that, of course, there were moments in life that I would have changed. Getting into an argument with somebody that I would have changed. Uh, that I wish I hadn't gotten into, drunken hijinks that I wish I wouldn't have had, yelling at someone that I wish I hadn't had, sending that email uh, that I wish I hadn't sent. There were many moments. But that all changed when I spoke to Shatner, honestly, because he was asked a similar question, and I I think he said that all those experiences helped make him who the, the person he is. And I feel the same way. Everything that I've gone through has helped make me who I am, and I feel pretty blessed uh, to be where I am today, not just professionally but personally. And so, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything, even all the mistakes that I've made. My dear Frank Morello. <laughs> uh, Evelyn from Bayonne, subject, patience. No idea what Carl was talking about. Told you before that you teach me patience. Don't be mad at Carl. I have to tell you, the person that you should focus your ire on is Kenneth. Kenneth should really be prepping these callers to make focused points, to get to the point right away, and to at least know my first name. Or, you know, again, if it was Dr. Laura, they would be trained to say, thank you, Dr. Laura, for taking my call. I am a reverend for the Universal Life Church, so I think the respectful thing for me when you call the show is to say, thank you, Reverend Morano, for taking my call. Kenny, we need to have a serious talk. Brandon from New Jersey writes, Greetings, Frank. Greetings, Frank. I know sometimes I call in to bust your chops or make jokes, but I want, you, I want you to know how much I love your show and appreciate all you do. Thanks for keeping us company overnight. Much love and respect to you, Matt, Alex, and Kenneth. Thank you. Uh, commendations from Rita in Pennsylvania. Frank, I want to commend you on your decision to no longer make social event plans on Sundays. Well, I said I'm going to try. I'm going to try. It's tough when it's family events involved here. For simplifying your life by turning down weekend invitations, I do commend you. You know, it's tough, though. How Last Sunday, for instance, what do I tell my father? I can't come to your birthday party because it's Sunday. I, I have to start being more disciplined, though. I'm just going to say I, I, that's my Sabbath. I'm not doing anything on Sunday. Um, let's see here. Uh, let me get what. Howling Laughing. You gave this is from Miss M. She writes, You gave Jake a bris. His call made my day. Well, there were also singing crabs, almost broke something. This was a response to uh, Friday's uh, Ask Frank Anything. All right. Uh, which, this is from Tom in California. Which view of Tucker Carlson's four minutes of cherry picked video from the 41,000 hours? Of the January 6th security tapes come closer to your own view. And then he quotes Mitch McConnell, 
Quote, I want to associate myself entirely with the opinion of the chief of the Capitol Police about what happened on January 6th. It was a mistake, in my view, for Fox News to depict this in a way that's completely at variance with what all of us who were there witnessed. Or Donald Trump Jr. And uh, he quotes Trump Jr. as saying, McConnell's upset with the way that Fox News and Tucker Carlson depicted what happened because it's in contrast with what the head of the Capitol Police said in the report. Are you kidding me? Are you insane? Uh, The answer is, and this is not somebody that I generally agree with, but the answer is Mitch McConnell. I I do think that the chief of the Capitol Police is right. If that's their version of what happened, I stand with the police. So my my view is that it's uh, McConnell. The, the vast majority, and I haven't really spoken about this January 6th uh, tape because I'm just so over it. And I feel like it's been done to death, but I'll, I'll just I'll say this for a, a minute. The vast majority of what Tucker Carlson aired was simply new angles on footage that we've already seen. I didn't watch all the Tucker Carlson airings of this, but um, his narrative, I think, on the whole, was very misleading to viewers. And there was a real opportunity to add more nuance to the narrative, but I, I think Tucker Carlson, to some extent, squandered it. Now, my position has been very clear. I am glad this footage is coming out. Rather than fight Kevin McCarthy on handing it over to Fox News, reporters and politicians should be insisting that he release the footage to more news organizations. I think it should be released to the public. I think everybody should have access to this 40,000 hours of footage. If McCarthy's really interested in transparency, he should actually be transparent and not conduct a political operation. Second, I want to be clear that this footage really didn't teach us much that we didn't already know. Tucker's segment was mostly recycled information that we already had, but he reframed it in the tone of a bombshell news story, packaging new camera angles on events that we'd already seen, and then insisting this was an obvious indictment on every Democrat and journalist who has ever breathed a word about this story. But uh, I don't think that's I don't think that's the case. I mean, the the focus on the QAnon shaman. Um, That was the biggest focus from what I gathered. He insisted that the footage showing the Capitol Police walking the QAnon shaman around proves that he was on something closer to an innocent police-assisted tour rather than the mission to uh, obstruct the certification of the election that he was convicted of. But the footage that Tucker showed doesn't prove that. It is a little bizarre, I will happily admit this, to see some of these images of police calmly standing next to this guy But it's also footage that we had, in large part, not yet seen. But we already knew the Capitol Police, um, we knew that the Capitol Police did this when they realized how outnumbered and overwhelmed they were by these protesters. They opted to try to de-escalate rather than fight. We know this because they testified as much. They testified to doing exactly what the footage shows them doing escorting some of the protesters around, hoping they would be satisfied enough to obey their orders to leave. So um, I, I uh, that's my take. I, I stand with the police on this. Getting one last email here. Um, oh, yeah, it's only all right. Uh, Matt Blaze wants to break. So who am I to argue with uh, with Matt Blaze? Uh, if you want to be heard in 15 seconds of fame, you can do so. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. 
It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Pete is in the Bronx. Russ is in White Plains. Every time I see Stewie on Family Guy, I think of you, Frank. But since you asked Scott Ritter about his internet entrapment, because your listeners want to know, why didn't you ask Bill Shatner about his dead wife in the pool? Because we want to know. Raji is in Manhattan. To feed and accommodate the recent illegal invaders are poor senior citizens whose benefits are being cut. By 70 to 100 percent. Mike in Montclair. Morning, Frank. I talked with my wife about getting an emotional support animal. I suggested a blonde, brunette, or even a redhead. Although I've heard they can be difficult around the house, she thought otherwise. (laughs) Marie on Long Island. (laughs) One thing and number two things. Number one, thank you. You're welcome. And number two is, where's the video? Of that day on January 6th of Donald Trump and his, and his kids, his boys, under the tent, under that white tent laughing. They showed it for a few seconds that day, and you haven't seen that tape since. Marie, thank you. Uh, on that note, uh, that slams lit on things for today. Happy birthday, my father, Carmine Morano. Happy birthday, Bob Grant. Frank Morano, good day.